Hello guys and welcome back to the Rosberry podcast. Uh, today I have a very special guest and uh, was lucky enough to have the opportunity to sit down and chat to Sebastian Younger. Uh, Sebastian is a, uh, he was a war journalist and a author and filmmaker and has done some really incredible work, you know, award-winning films and uh, best-selling books. And I first, I actually first heard about Sebastian on the Tim Ferriss podcast. I then later heard him on the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, which event, you know, prompted me to buy his book Tribe, which he was talking about at the time. And, uh, I read that, mentioned it on my podcast and on one of the other episodes. And then that came around to me being able to sit down and talk to him on my podcast. So it's, it was kind of a, a bit of a crazy, surreal experience, but one that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, so yeah, I'd, I won't bother talking anymore. I'll just let you guys check it out. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Firstly, uh, really a, like a massive thanks for you know chatting to me. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I look forward to it. Um, man, let's just get straight into it, shall we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, war journalism. Why? My dad grew up in Europe, and he was born in 1923, and he... He, he they lived in Spain when he was young, and he was pushed out. His family was pushed out of Spain by Franco during the Civil War. Uh, they fled Madrid when the fascists overran Madrid, and they 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 went to Paris. Uh, his dad was Jewish, so when the N- Nazis came in, they left Paris, and and that's how he came to the United States and eventually met my mom. His 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 life was enormously affected by war. And I grew up in a very safe environment in, in the United States in a little quiet little suburb. But I was always very curious about this thing called war. I mean, it's sort of this mythic thing and it had affected my father very much. He was a ardent pacifist, but he also sort of believed in, um, in mil- military intervention. I mean, America intervened and stopped fa- the rise of fascism mm. in the world. And that was very important to him. And so, I was always curious about it, and there was, you know, I'd sort of dawdled my way through my 20s doing different things. I wanted to be a writer. wasn't really working out, and there was a civil war in Bosnia, and I thought, okay, I'm 31 years old. It's time to make something happen, mm. and, I, and I had this sense that if you go to a war, you will make things happen. I mean, psychologically, emotionally, professionally, like it's sort of make or break, a sort of make or break moment in your life, and so I went off to the Civil War in Bosnia. I was in Sarajevo. I spent about six months over there, and I sort of learned to be a war reporter. And, um, But I also learned what it was like to sort of participate in the drama of the world. You know, it was unfolding around me. Mm-hmm. I was reporting on it. Suddenly I went from, um, I don't know, I, suddenly I was, I was leading a meaningful life. And that, uh, beyond the adrenaline and all that other stuff, the sense of meaning mm-hmm. and purposefulness that comes with being in that situation was, um, I would say, almost sort of intoxicating. And it yeah. really made me want to continue doing that. Yeah, so it wasn't sort of, you weren't just an adrenaline junkie, but there was something a lot deeper than that. Yes, I mean, listen, I've never gone skydiving. Yeah. I drive the speed limit. Like, I'm really not an adrenaline junkie. I mean, we're all susceptible to that intoxicating rush of yeah. adrenaline. I mean, of course. Um, but that's a very ephemeral thing. But yeah. the sense of meaning and purpose uh, they come from being a war, war reporter or, or many other things, but war reporter among them. Um, I think that actually, in a very deep sense, um, is, uh, I mean, I, I hesitate to use the word addictive, but it's it certainly... Um, I think if that's the word that you're naturally feeling, then that's probably right. what it was, right? Yeah. You know, it's kind of sometimes you want to, it doesn't sound right, so you want to change the word, but right. usually the first thing you say is... 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. I mean, it's addictive in a sort of metaphorical sense. Uh, I, I think really it becomes your identity is what, sure. what I mean. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's how you see yourself. Oh, no other life is worth living. This life is one that has meaning and purpose. Mm. So this is this is the the life I want to live. I mean, in, addictive in that sense. Mm. Yeah, no, it, you, you kind of said uh, you were being part of the drama of the world, which is a really interesting sort of metaphor, which is the major almost everyone, especially in a place, you know, Western civilization, such as the United States, such as Europe, where we're not affected by that. We are at war. You know, both countries are. We, we've got a lot of, you know, big military, but civilians are not affected in any way by yeah. any of that because it's not on our shores. So we, even though there's all of this drama going around the world with British and American citizens, respectively for the both of us, for me as a civilian, right. I just never, you know, never seen guns get shot at people, never seen yeah. people blown up. And this is all going on. And it's sort of we're living in a almost a fantasy world separate from that, like you said, drama. And you kind of by going into and doing these war report and you got involved with that. That's right. And and I think one of the things that was at the root of my sort of malaise as a young man was was precisely that I lived I was born into a pretty peaceful affluent society. Mm-hmm. And you know when you um you know I write about this in my book Tribe, but if you are if you are fortunate in that way, your community does not need you. Mm-hmm. Right? That's all that stuff's taken care of. Your yeah. fire department, police department, you know whatever. I mean it's all the and 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 likewise, you don't need your community, yeah, right. And that and that communal connection is enormously important in our evolutionary past. It's enormously important psychologically, emotionally. And the irony is that the wealthier or the the more affluent you are, the less of that you have, and mm. it really does lead to a kind of dissatisfaction. And I had this sense that there were situations that I could put myself into that would require of me a communal participation. Mm. And, and, and I sort of hungered for that. Yeah. And, and I found it in, in war. So what made you, there are lots of people in a very similar situation to you who um, are basically, you know, they live in the civilian world and they're safe. They don't have to rely on the community and they're a little bit isolated from yeah. the kind of wider experience of humanity. But what, what was, or do you think was the difference with you that you actually said, you know what, this isn't right. I actually want to put yeah. myself in this communal lifestyle. I, I mean, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I, I think my... It was just like an urge to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people understand, the, the or, or feel the lack of something, the lack of community in affluent society. And by affluent society, I mean most of the West. It's like 99% you know, of... Right. I mean, like right. I don't mean yeah. like you know Beverly Hills I mean that too of course but I really mean most of the West and because my comparison you know as a species we evolved as hunter as hunter gatherers or very mobile hunter gatherers very egalitarian there's no way to accumulate wealth Um, obviously very tough existence that's our evolutionary past and so the more modern the society the further we are from Mm -hmm. that and the less communal we are and so uh, you know, a wealthy suburb, which is actually what I grew up in, is is at the very, very tip of that, yeah. the very far end of that spectrum, and it's even worse. But I don't know what made me. I think we all perceive the effects of that, and and, and I think we all are subject to what, that kind of malaise of not being part of a, a tight community. But for me, I mean, on the one hand, I was very aware of my father's experience in World War II. I'd heard the stories about the Blitz in London and how. You know, Londoners all, they're, they're, you know, they slept on, in the tube station, sort of shoulder mm. to shoulder on the ground, you know, rich people, poor people. And I remember hearing those stories because they were, you know, I was born in 1962. So that history was quite recent yeah. 
you know, when I was a child. And I remember just, I remember thinking, oh my God, that must have been so great. You know, like mm. you're, you're, you're in this, you're in, you're, you're in this, it together. You're in it together. Yeah. The, the, there's this incredibly dramatic thing happening. So life and death stakes, like, and, and along with the tragedy of, of war and people dying, along with that, there's this, there's this incredibly important thing that's going on mm. that you're part of. And I, 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 because of my family's history, I was aware of that, and I understood that there was there was a, maybe there was a way to, for myself to get that as well. Mm. Um, did you ever think about enlisting as a soldier? You know, I didn't um, for a few reasons. You know, one was I was from a very uh, liberal family. Does that word mean the same thing in yes. the U.S. as England? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I was from a very liberal family. Um, I grew up during Vietnam. Uh, every adult I knew was against the war. Sure, yeah. The military, frankly, was different than it is now. I mean, it really, um, it did not have a good reputation. And I mean the leadership. Mm. The leadership did not have a good reputation. And rightfully so. I mean, there was a lot, there was a lot of, there was a lot of lying mm. uh, that came out of the Pentagon during Vietnam because they were, it was a failing war that they were, you know, trying to cover up for, right? Yeah. So, you know, by the time I was 18, 20 years old, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to join that. And, there, and honestly, there were no wars to fight. I mean, sure. you know, I mean, as a young man, had there been a sort of righteous war that my nation needed to fight, I would have been on that in a second, mm. right? But what I, was, what I was looking at in 1980 was a peacetime army that had come out of Vietnam, very, its reputation very bruised, mm. and I was a liberal, right? So <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you 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 first went and reported in where did you say it was in uh, Bosnia, Sarajevo, Bosnia, yeah, uh, and then that I guess you had that sort of communal experience, and was that sort of instantaneous? Because you know, you, instead of going into because what I was almost expecting is that you went into war journalism for some other reason, whatever reason it was, and then you found this right. communal spirit whilst you were there and sort of followed down that path, but actually. It was already it was already in your head, and you went out looking for a scenario that you could find that community. Uh, yeah, I mean, to put a like slightly finer point on it, I had felt I did discover that the the, um, the the sort of deep satisfaction of that communalism. I did sort of discover it in wartime. I went to war first. The most immediate reason was I felt like I'd never having grown up in a safe, affluent suburb that I had never fully become a man. Sure. I had never passed through that threshold and never proven myself, mm. either to my society or to myself, yeah. um, by, by encountering um, a hardship, a threat, a, a, a test mm. that would sort of transform me and demonstrate that I had that I was an adult. Like I'd never gone through that ancient process of initiation. Yeah. There's always been something, hasn't There's, there? Every society's always had something. You had the, whether it was you had to fight or you had to lift a big stone onto right, a right, wall right. or whatever it was. Kill a lion, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's a very ancient thing. And again, with the rise of agriculture 10,000 years ago and then the industrial revolution and then the technological revolution and more and more urbanized uh, lives, uh, you know, that's been lost. And, yeah. and, and, but I, I, you know, I felt the sort of lack of it, the need of it. And I also, you know, I studied anthropology in university. And so I was very aware of those sort of human processes, yeah. uh, those sort of a ancient human processes. I was extremely aware of them as well. And so, um, I set off to war 
in my mind consciously telling myself I need a situation that demonstrates my my virtues right yeah. my, my capabilities and underneath that I think there was a sort of underlying hunger for meaningfulness for community um, but I don't think I, I hadn't articulated it quite sure, yet yeah. but when I encountered it I recognized it yeah yeah, no, that's a, it's a, such an interesting point about sort of that test of manliness, which is, and it makes sense that sort of as society became more agricultural and industrialized, that everyone became a bit more comfortable. And I think it's natural for the majority of people to want, you want to be comfortable. You know, if yeah. you want to sleep in a comfortable bed instead of sleeping yeah. on a floor, yeah. you kind of naturally want to do that. You want to make life easy, but then you get to a point where you make life so easy that you become weaker. Right. And you you have to understand that at the hunter-gatherer level of existence, um, many game animals that were hunted in our evolutionary past were very dangerous. Mm. And they were just predators that killed humans that had to be defended against. Mm. And there were bands of other humans that were potentially aggressive if the, if um, if there weren't, wasn't enough food, enough resources, they would fight for resources. So one of the reasons they tested young men was to prepare them to know that they could count on them when that lion attacked the camp when the enemy attacked the camp. I mean, like, so, so you, so they, they conducted these tests so that the young men were prepared for the real thing. Mm. You don't have to confront, you don't have to, you don't have to face a danger, a hardship when you're, um, planting crops. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's an incredibly hard job. Like I'm not like, I'm not diminishing the difficulty of that, but it's not... There's no risk. There's no risk. It's not dangerous, right? So you don't have to initiate young men in that same way because they're not facing predators, right? And and, and as society gets more and more removed from the sort of physical realities of the natural world, young men are less and less needed to defend against those realities. Mm. So initiations become... um, you know, completely unnecessary. Yeah. But of course, we're wired as young men. We're wired to want that, um, and 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 there therein lies the sort of like sad irony of of civilization. Yeah. So so, what do you think of uh, something like national service, making everyone? And there's a c- few countries in the world that still have national service. Yeah. Every single person has to go through, you know, a couple of years yeah. of of military duty, and that sort of I guess that is the that is a modern day equivalent of the manhood or you know yeah. the adult as even females have to do yeah. as well uh that that rite of passage into adulthood i personally i think national service is a very 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 good thing both mm-hmm. for the nation and the individual and i and i wouldn't limit it to the military i mean i think um i understand the moral objection to war the moral objection to hand, even handling weapons like i, sure, I completely yeah. get it um, some people are always going to feel that way. Some people are going to be dying to handle weapons. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, and and unfortunately, history has made room for both. And you know, that's just what we are as a species. So, but in, but mandatory national service with a military option, I think uh, it, I think it binds nations together. Mm. It requires that everyone participate in this great project of having a nation together. I think that's extremely important for making one's citizenship um, feel valuable. Yeah. Um, the more you sacrifice for something, the more you value it. Psychologists will tell you that. So I think that's very important. It also mixes the social classes, the races. The, I mean, sort of mixes everyone up. Exposes you to more people. Yeah, I mean, early, what, early age. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the you know one of the um, 
real difficulties my country, the United States, is facing right now are these very painful divisions of class and race. Yes. I mean, they're written in politics. I mean, really dangerous. Mm. I mean, bullets will not destroy the United States, but 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 words will, yeah. and we're we're on the on the road to doing that. And you know, I think national service would put liberals and conservatives, black, white, religious, not religious, rich, poor, put them all in the pot and make, and make them equal for a while. And that egalitarianism is extremely important to unity. And, and you know, frankly, you don't get it unless you make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's uh, – no, I agree. I think that it's – and, you know, you would say, like, uh, that they could do police service or fire service and stuff like that instead of going into the military. So I just, mean, they could teach in, in – you know, they could teach in schools in the inner city. I mean, yeah. you know, what, I mean, uh, really virtually anything. I mean, the, But when they're serving someone else. They, right? right. They have to serve uh, not just someone else. They have to serve the nation. Yeah, the I mean, community. they have to serve yeah. the community. The biggest community that they're part of is the nation. They have to serve that. And that, that's a very, very healthy thing. Yeah. No, no, I definitely think so. It's very interesting. Um it would be interesting to talk to some people from countries that do have national service to see what sort of what do they think of it how do they you know right. how do they feel about being told that they need to do that how do they feel before and afterwards and it would be I, I mean you know Israel comes to mind yeah. immediately for me and um, Israelis that I've spoken to I mean every single one has said that national service and and and, and in Israel it's mandatory military service yes. it's not anything yeah. it's actually military. Um, that that was that it's extremely important. I mean, yeah. it's a really an important part of of of, gr- of growing up for both men and women. I mean, it's you know in Israel it's both, and as it should be. And um, you know, I think it's uh, uh, what I understand is that it's a very good thing for them. Mm. So let's get back to your ex- experience in yeah. uh, sort of journalism. How long were you a war journalist for? Uh, well, I went to Sarajevo in 1993, and fifteen fifteen years. Uh, Fifteen years later, uh, in two thousand eight, was the last time I was shot at. Wow! Uh, in eastern Afghanistan. So that's a really, really long time to be to be doing what you were doing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was intermittent. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. You know, I wasn't you like on the, the you know right. I wasn't the yeah. classic foreign foreign correspondent, sure, like sure. going from hotspot to hotspot, and you know, like I mean, I lived in the United States. Yeah. I would my assignments were several weeks, several months long. Uh, but they were not back to back. I mean, yeah. I, you know, so. But but, did you feel when you were back in in the United States? Did you feel that desire to get back out there? Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, simultaneous relief at being home, and um, if I was home long enough, I, I would I would want to get back out yeah. there. Absolutely. And obviously, one of the the kind of craziest assignments that you had was Restrepo. Yeah, that was pretty out there. And uh, you know, I was saying to you just before we started that I watched the f- the film. That yeah. was the first film that you made. Yeah, Restrepo. Um, and I know you did like a couple of follow ups to that. Yeah, and I and I should say I made it with uh, um, with my good friend Tim, Tim Hetherington, yeah. who was English, uh, and we were we were co- we were equal and co partners in yeah. every every aspect of that film. Yeah, and um, yeah, for those who haven't seen that, I advise that you see it because. I think that that kind of brings the reality of warfare on such in a very very different way to anything else that you've seen. It's it's just you with a camera yeah. in a camp, right? Yeah, we were at a twenty man outpost, um, twenty five man outpost uh, on a ridge, about a in like the most dangerous place in the world. It was, it was a lot of combat there. It was the Korangal Valley in eastern Afghanistan, and you know I understand that I've been going to Afghanistan since the mid nineties. Like that was before nine eleven. It was already a country that they knew very very well. Yeah. 
and uh, and was very fond of. And so being with American soldiers in Afghanistan was extremely weird for me. Mm. Uh, I'd always been with the Afghans because the U.S. wasn't involved okay. yet. And, so what uh, were you doing there beforehand? You were- I was reporting on the Civil War, on, okay. on the rise of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. I went there in 1996 to report on the al-Qaeda training camps outside Jalalabad. Oh, wow. Uh, in 2000, I was with Massoud in the north as his northern alliance fought the Taliban. Um, of course, the Northern Alliance became America's allies after 9-11, our sort of proxy native yeah. forces on the ground. But I was with those commanders a year before 9-11 as they battled the Taliban outside of Kabul. So I, you know, I knew Afghanistan quite well from the Afghans' perspective. Wow. So then the U.S. went in, and what was a, a quick, easy war, um, George Bush's sort of bizarre genius was to turn a quick, easy war into a sort of long-term failure. And so I was... Um, I decided to cover American forces. You know, by 2007, it was clear that we were going to be stuck there for a long time, which is tragic for both the United States and for Afghanistan. You know, we should have been able to wrap that up. Instead, we went to Iraq. But at any rate, but I digress. (laughs) Anyway, I refused to cover Iraq because I was so against it. But um, so Restrepo was... um, it was a new experience for me because I was with American forces. Was that the first time you were with American forces? Two years early, I'd done a brief stint with the same unit. But the first, and, the first but, time but you were properly. Yeah. How long were you in Restrepo for? I did five one-month trips. Wow. And Tim also did five one-month trips, rough, yeah, roughly. And, yeah. and so we covered a lot of the deployments. Sometimes Tim and I were together. Sometimes we weren't. Sure. Um, so it was, it was 15 months that they were? 14, yeah. 14 that was yeah. the... the yeah. But they were there for longer, or it was just no, that, no, that no. Deployment that, was the there deployment for 14 was months. fourteen months. Okay, um, and and I should describe Restrepo. I mean, it, it was a it was a very small outpost, twenty five men and some uh, Afghan soldiers attached, a, a unit of Afghan soldiers attached to them. Um, it was sandbags, little plywood huts that they built rickety things it looked like a mining camp in in you know alaska yeah. in 1900 you know i mean it was really really primitive there was no running water there was no cooked food uh for the first three months there wasn't even a generator for electricity wow uh it was we had pallets of ammo and pallets of water and pallets of mres these are meals ready to eat that are sort of infamous uh surrounded by sandbags that we were filling every day to build up the fortifications because it was so exposed and there, there was i mean my first day up there the combat, the the outpost was attacked, uh, forced four times, very very hard in one day. In the first, the fr- yeah, and that was just one day. I mean, that was the first. Wow. I almost got killed that day. I mean, a bullet hit the, a sandbag, uh, you know, inches from my. Forehead. I heard you say that story. You were sitting yeah. down, and then you just feel this kind of blast of sand, and you realize that a bullet's hit. Three a bullet smacked the sandbag right. That next was to your my head. first day. That was my first day, and and it, and that bullet was the first round of the first burst of an hour long firefight. So when it hit, I didn't know. You know, understand the bullets travel faster than sound. Yeah. So if rounds come in on you, the first thing you notice is just things are moving around you. And, and then it, you hear it. And, and you hear it later. But the first question, I mean, the first thought in your mind is a question mark, right? Like, what's happened? What, mm. what was that? It, it snap, snap, snap. I mean, it's a very subtle sound. And, and it kicks sand in the side of my face. I was like, damn, what was that? It was a bullet that hit a few inches from my forehead. I mean, a very small deviation in the gun barrel of someone who's firing fi- from 500 meters. You're talking now, about fractions, w- fractions I, I, of degrees. Yeah, I mean, you don't you want to think about that yeah. that math, yeah. right? Yeah. And and uh, that saved my life. And that was just the first, <laughs> that was the first morning, right? So uh, it was, and we were out there, and it wasn't always like that. Not every day was like that, obviously. But You'd hope not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but th- that was the first day that you were on the outpost. Yeah. Did you not at that point go, 
what the fuck am I doing here? Well, I mean, understand that it's facing danger in a group feels very different than facing danger by yourself. So I've been in a lot of situations by myself in civil wars in Liberia and Sierra Leone where I had no one to rely on. Um, and that's really deeply frightening. When you're with a group fairly quickly, um, you get this sense of solidarity like, okay, we're all going to take care of each other. And in my case, I wasn't carrying a rifle. So I, you know, like it really was a matter of they're going to take, they're going to, yeah. You know, what happens to me is going to be happening to them too. We are all in this situation together. They're going to do their best to keep us all safe. And, and, and when you feel that connection, you get a little bit fatalistic about the outcome. You're like, okay, if what happens to me happens to everyone, you know, if it's all, if we're all together, mm. I'm at peace with whatever the outcome is. Wow. When you're by yourself in a civil war, you do not feel that way, right? But once you're in a group, you affiliate extremely quickly with other people around you when you're facing danger. I mean, it happens in hours, in days. Like, it doesn't take a long time. It very, very quickly. You affiliate with them to the point where you care as, almost as much about what happens to them as what happens to you. I mean, it all becomes sort of the same thing. Mm. That feeling of connection, of, 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 um, of loyalty to the group... Uh, and a shared fate and a shared commitment, that feeling is a kind of drug. I mean, it makes you feel extremely good mm. and it's very, very hard to let go of. It must make you feel quite powerful, you know, in a sense, because almost that you're, you're not an individual anymore. Yeah. You're, you're sort of one limb of this organism, which yeah. is comprised of 25 men. Right. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting. I never thought of this before, but it's an interesting thought. When I was young, you know, when I was a teenager, post-Vietnam, I understood that the military took away the um, people's individuality. I mean, I sort of got that point. You know, they shave your head. They put you in a cap. Everyone looks the same. Everyone talks the same. They just strip you of your individuality. Mm. I, I understood that, but I had thought that that was something imposed by the um, hierarchy imposed by the leadership on the young men. What I didn't understand is that the leadership has nothing to do with it. You lose your individuality because you become part of a group mm. and a, a part of a, a group that you love very deeply and that you, and where you are, your concern for yourself is equal to your concern for them yeah. and vice versa. And so your individual, your individuality isn't lost in an authority structure. It's given away. It's given away to people that you love. Wow. And, and I mean love. I mean, I mean that very, very literally. And that I did not understand. I thought it was a kind of um, generic brainwashing. Yeah, that's, of, what I, that's what I assumed right. as well. It's not that at all. You could never do that. It would never work. People mm. would rebel. There's no way to rebel against your peers, right? You can, you can rebel against the colonel, against the general, against your father. I mean, no problem. That's sweet, right? I mean, that, that's fun. Like, yeah, that feels yeah, good. Yeah. You, you can't rebel against your peers, because they're your peers. Yeah. You want them to accept you. Right? You don't care if the general accepts you, mm. but you want you, your, your brothers to accept you. Right? Mm. So, so you, bec you lose your, your concern about yourself very, very quickly when you're in a group of peers where you're all fighting the same thing. And that's an ancient, ancient human response. And I think cl very, very clearly mirrors our evolutionary past yeah. as a species that lived in small groups in a very harsh environment. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so you're part of this group. Obviously, the big difference was that you, were a, you weren't a soldier. You were a reporter, yeah. but you're having to go through all of the same things that they're going through. Yeah. Uh, you just got a camera in your hand instead of a gun. 
is there was there any difference in the way that you were perceived or that you felt that you were perceived or were you just you were just another member of the squad but you had a camera I mean, at first, I was a guy they didn't know. I was a journalist. They didn't know if I was a good guy or a bad yeah. guy. I mean, you know, it, it's like being the new kid in school. Well, the, I guess the, you're the new kid in school, but it's you're not coming into the class with them because they, they've they gone through the training. Right. They've gone through all of these right. things. They have shared experiences about doing this and doing that. You're coming in with very different experiences, obviously, by that point, along right. lots of experiences in war zones, but you're not gone through the same path that they've right. gone into. Well. One thing that soldiers respect is combat experience. Yeah. Right. So when they found out that Tim and I had more combat experience than they did. Yes. Because they were new soldiers. I mean, yeah. some of them were new soldiers, the, right? The, 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 the film, they're so young. So they're very, very young. Yeah. And some of them, a lot of them were the first deployment. So Tim and I had been recovering wars for quite a while. So when they found out that we actually... That was you know, in. That, they respected that. Like, okay, these guys, the thing that we respect and value, they have a lot of it already themselves. And... The other thing they want to make sure is that you're um, not going to be a problem, right? That you're not going to be self-concerned, that you're not going to um, uh, protest when things get uncomfortable, when you get tired, that you're not going to slow the patrol down, that you're not going to just – that you're not going to be a pain in the ass, yeah. right? They, that's the, Because that puts them in danger. So if you have combat experience and you're not going to be a pain in the ass and you can f- carry your full load of gear – and not ask favors from them, and maybe you're even in a position to help them sometimes, mm. right? Like if you, and if you're a nice guy, it takes a while for them to find these things out, and that you're going to report on the on the situation in a neutral way. Yeah, that you don't have an agenda, you know, basically anti-soldier, anti yeah, yeah. anti-war agenda that you're going to impose no matter what you see on the ground. If they satisfy themselves that that about all those concerns, you're good. With that, right, and and you're not costing them anything. They're they're equipped to defend their position, to defend their unit. Putting you in the platoon doesn't make it harder for them to do that, as long as you act well. And yeah. so, because they're not co- you're not costing them anything, they don't need to dislike you, right? If you if suddenly if a sort of general flies in and suddenly there's a whole, they have to like be altered altered their behavior because of the, there's a general at o, op restrepo like that's a huge pain in the ass for mm. them and 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 that makes them uncomfortable because it alters how they'd have to be with me they didn't yeah they could just be relaxed yeah yeah and it wasn't changing tactically what they had to do right a general flying in would yes. and so that makes them uncomfortable yeah like when the teacher walks in the room everyone's yeah. gonna yeah, everyone's right. gonna yeah, yeah, exactly. straight, yeah. yeah um or, you know when you're saying you kind of you you had to not be a pain in the ass did you feel like you almost had you had to be you had to focus on that even more than they had to you know like i imagine that there were a couple of troops every it's it's a shit place to be you know you're saying you've got no you know at times no no you couldn't cook food you've got no running water no electricity for three months you've got no internet you can't no communication you're just stuck in in you know for for months and months on end no there were no women out there as all guys Yeah. yeah and um Everyone must moan at some point. Oh, yeah, of course. But almost you had to moan a little bit less consciously because they, they were the soldiers and you were the reporter. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the thing, I mean there's a solidarity in complaining, right? So yeah, if it's a really, everyone's complaining about the r- same bullshit. Right, and so, that, so yeah. that, now I was twice their age and I didn't want, I mean, sometimes I got very tired, I got, you know, whatever, and I didn't want to, I was very careful about complaining because I didn't want them to think that in my advanced age of, 45 now you know at 45 i was in shape i was yeah, in good shape yeah. but my into their i mean in their eyes i was a 
I mean, I was a grandfather, right? <laughs> I mean, they could they didn't even know people lived that long, right? I mean, they're so young, right? Yeah, they don't. Yeah. So, so I didn't want to complain and have them worried that at forty five, like I, that, my body was starting to fail me, like sure. that, or that I might have trouble with the task. And is the thing, you know, I mean, it was a six, seven, eight thousand feet. You know, the guys carried, uh, you know, fifty kilos of gear at times wow. or more, sixty yeah, kilos yeah, of yeah. gear. Uh, it was extremely hot in the summer. We the, the patrols were absolutely brutal. I mean, people were just m- physically maxed out, the very limit of their strengths, of their strength. And and I I just remember thinking like you never you never want to affect the the movements, the decisions of the patrol, because if you slow down a patrol just because you're tired, you can't do it. And the patrol gets hit, gets attacked, and it's someone gets hurt. It's on you. It's on me, right? So. I had this idea, like, it's okay if you're hurting, it's okay if you're slow, as long, as long as there's one guy who's slower than you are, as long as there's one guy who's hurting more than you are, yeah. as long as there's another soldier who is lagging behind and causing the patrol to change decisions yeah. and, and, and slow down, whatever, as long as it's not you. Yeah. And so I was, you know, I, w- I was very, very conscious of that, and, and I was an, a longtime athlete from when I was young. I was in really good shape, I, 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 and, and I knew because I was a, a very intense distance runner. I mean, I ran the mile, I ran the marathon. Like, and when I was oh, young, okay, I was yeah. I ran some very good times. Uh, I ran two twenty one for the marathon, wow. four twelve mile. Like, I ran some good times. Wow. But mostly, I knew how to hurt. Sure. My body, my my mind knew how to deal with pain, huh. and and so on a really tough patrol on a steep mountain on a hot day and we've run out of water and we're carrying a lot of weight i know how to go through that discomfort and that pain without panicking and thinking oh my god i can't do this i know how i know how to make my body do something until my body can't do it anymore Mm. when my mind doesn't give up and only athletes and soldiers know how to do that right you don't you need to train in athletics one of the things you're training is your mind and you're training your mind to not negotiate Sure. Right? You're totally unnegotiable. I'm going to do this until my body fails me. Yeah. And for most people, their mind fails them first. And I, I knew how to not let that happen. And that was extremely valuable out mm. there. You know, because I was going to ask, you know, these are people who have gone through the physical training to be in that regimen. And obviously, you didn't have to go through the same training, but you've still kind of had to keep up with all of the physical demands. Yeah. But you've kind of answered that, which is, you know, totally long, long distance running is it's all in the head. Yeah. You know, anyone anyone can run a marathon. Anyone yeah. physically, yeah. if you needed to, if your life was in danger, anyone could run a marathon. Probably you probably feel it the next day, but everyone yeah. could do it. The reality is not everyone can do it because they quit. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of people if you're not an athlete, an endurance athlete, um you, people don't realize that when they first start to feel fatigue that that's just the first step. Yeah. In a long process of a physical collapse, right? That's the first sort of gentle caress of fatigue. You know, people panic. They think, oh my God, I can't do this anymore because I feel tired. I'm like, no, no, that's the first layer. Like, yeah. you have many layers to go before you're, you are just a pathetic mass of quivering flesh yeah. collapsed on the ground, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a long way from where you are right now. You've got plenty left. You're just going to pay for it because it's going to hurt. Yeah. It's really going to hurt. And then it's going to hurt so much you think you can't bear it another, uh, you know, another minute. And then after that, you're still going to be able to go on if you are determined to. Mm. And eventually, your body will completely fail you. But you're a long way from that. Mm. But you have to, athletes know how to navigate that process and bring themselves right to that point where they're not choosing to slow down their body is simply failing them. Yeah. And that 
any any elite marathoner, any distance competitive distance runner, boxer, Brazilian jiu jitsu. I mean, any I mean any of those any of those really intense physical endeavors. People know how to how to not negotiate a, a, a partial surrender in the middle of the situation. Yeah, yeah. I've I've heard that like the forty percent rule. I think it was from I think it was from the uh, U.S. like a Navy or someone. It might have been Jocko actually, but he said basically, you know, when you think that you're done, you're forty percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's how far you've got. When you think right. you're absolutely done, you've got about sixty percent left. That's right, <laughs> and that's right. And, and and the whole point of boot camp and all this intense training that soldiers go through to is show to you that. Is show, the, yeah. show you that. Like, yeah, you're you're. You know, you think you're completely done. Like, no, you got tons left in you. Yeah. You know, and that's that's a super important lesson. I already knew it from athletics. If I were a just sort of ordinary civilian, and by civilian I mean someone who had not been engaged in really competitive athletics, mm. if I'd just been an ordinary civilian, I wouldn't know that. Yeah. And I, I, I think that would be a very dangerous thing to do, to be in a situation like I was at Restrepo, and to have not encountered your body's physical limitations before that. It would be very, very dangerous. Mm. So do you think that the sort of brotherhood and the, the, the group dynamics, that closeness that, that, that you saw at Restrepo, that must have been tighter knit than any other place that you, that you yeah. covered, oh, just because yeah. of the intensity of it. Surely the yeah. sort of the, 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 the bigger, you know, the more pressure there is, the stronger and tighter that connection is going to be. So I, I guess, is there ever a point where sort of that tightness can almost become a negative Right, you know, because because I guess this goes to the whole, um, you know, one of the things in tribe is it is the issue is coming out of that community, right, that close knit, and going back home. You know, one of the really interesting things that that you said on your that that, that you said in tribe, um, which is just mind blowing, which is the number of people who suffer from PTSD coming home from war who never saw yeah. fire. You know, they never saw proper right. action, right, because it's not actually getting f- shot at. You said, I know, I've heard you say that you have you've had nightmares of being strafed even though you've never been strafed right because it's it's not necessarily sort of remembering it's just that the mental state that you're in from not being part of that community yeah. anymore well well there's two things i mean if you're in combat you suffer different kinds of trauma yeah and it takes a while to recover from trauma um you sprain your ankle it takes a while to recover from that likewise with trauma right then there's a different problem which is the transition from a communal group to the kind of dispersed, individualized society that we live in. And again, there's a lot of blessings to living in the society we live in. I mean, yeah. it's not just negatives, right? I mean, there's an incredible society, and some of what's incredible about it comes from our ability to be individuals, yeah. right? So we're, so I don't want to completely dismiss our society, but the transition from communalism to that to our kind of society is very, very hard psychologically. So that's true for soldiers who were in combat, the very few who were in combat. But it's also true for guys who weren't, for people who weren't in combat. They were a rear-based support unit. They weren't getting shot at. They were not getting traumatized. But they were living communally and totally interdependently with their very important task at hand that they had to do every day. I mean, that's our evolutionary past in a nutshell. So when you take people that weren't even, that weren't traumatized, but you're, but you're taking them from a communal environment to modern, back into modern society, they disperse, they go off into their individual lives, they're not living in communities anymore, no one needs them, they don't need anybody. Th- that is hard. So that gets diagnosed as PTSD, it but not. it's not. Yeah. The T in PTSD is, is trauma, is the word trauma, right? Mm. 
but you can have those issues without the trauma. And really, it's a transition disorder sure. um, that results in a kind of depression, yeah. right? So Peace Corps volunteers, um, do people in this country know what the Peace Corps is? It's a foreign service in the United States. You, sure. You're like volunteer in a, in a village in the developing world, and it's a two-year program that you can join the U.S. So Peace Corps volunteers, they never see combat, but they're living in very close, very poor environments, in communities in the developing world that plays to all of our tendencies as humans to want to belong to be needed to need others and then they after two years they fly home and about a quarter of peace corps volunteers slip into a really significant depression when wow. they come home that's what happens to soldiers who weren't traumatized and they shouldn't call it ptsd they should call it something else because it's not trauma well i was just about to ask that would you like to see a division in that diagnosis which is ptsd splitting off from you know this non-trauma related depression caused yeah. from the you know the transition back into a non-communal lifestyle yeah i mean i think you know when you when you misdiagnose it as ptsd the soldiers who really are suffering from something yeah try they they, they imagine it's too broad the, yeah. the, the, the PTSD spectrum is too broad. It covers too many different things. Yeah, and it forces them to invent or imagine traumas that didn't happen to expl- because they've been given this diagnosis. Course, they yeah. do truly feel bad. And they're like, oh, well, I must have been traumatized, even though at the yeah, time it wasn't yeah, that scary. Yeah. But there was that mortar that landed a mile away on the base. You know, I mean, a mortar landing a mile away doesn't do anything to anybody, right? Yeah. But like, oh, well, maybe that's what it was. You know, so they invent these – they invent – reactions that didn't I mean that doesn't serve anybody but so I think if you called it uh, I think I had a phrase for it I can't remember what it was uh, post-deployment transition disorder sure post-deployment transition disorder that is actually closer to what the problem is for a lot of soldiers and that I think would be a healthful phrase to use Mm. right and the problem is a lot of soldiers a lot of a lot of people who serve are 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 um, sometimes a little bit um, self conscious of the fact that they weren't in combat when, because when civilians think of soldiers, they have this sort of like stereotypical idea like every soldier's in combat. Yeah, they don't realize that only ten percent of soldiers are in combat. Really, wow. So the other ninety percent are can be quite self conscious of the fact that they weren't in combat. They feel guilty almost. They do feel guilty. Wow, absolutely. And then they really feel guilty because they get home and they get depressed. And they, and they, and they think, I wasn't traumatized. Sure. Why am I depressed? Yeah. And, and so it, it, it's a very unhealthy thing. So if we could acknowledge that the transition is actually extremely difficult, mm. that might relieve soldiers of having to imagine traumas that never quite happened. Yeah, that makes sense. It almost seems like, you know, because I know you said uh, this this lack of communal living and, and, and community is one of, you know, you believe to be one of the causes of, of especially male depression, you know, I think yeah. white male, middle-aged men who suffer from the highest rate level of suicide yeah. and depression and stuff That's like right. that. Um, it seems almost from listening to it that you can kind of feel that there's something missing, but once you see it by going and living in the, you know, in this community and then you come back out of it it's even worse almost like sort of you know when you're saying this I'm thinking it's Neo he knows something's going on then he gets shown the real world 
and then kind of the mind's blown and you can never go back to living inside the matrix. That's right. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of scales have been torn from your eyes, right? Like you now, see, you now see modern society for what it is, which is very lucky in a lot of ways, a lot of opportunities. It's an enlightened world. There's philosophy, there's science, there's the rule of law. I mean, it's okay. I mean, amazing things that we've created in this society, but it's very individualized and it's very alienating. And even if, you're, even if you have a family, that family is not embedded in a wider community that it depends on and that depends on it. Um, it really is its own little spaceship, right, yeah. going through the world. And that is psychologically very, very hard. And so if you are in a platoon in combat and experience the, the fellowship, uh, the brotherhood or the fellowship of 30, 40, 50 people engaged in, all engaged in the same task and relying on each other, that's our evolutionary past. And you're exposed to that and you, and you do that for a year, and then you come back to this system, you see it with completely fresh eyes, and you see it honestly. You mm. see it realistically. And what you see is not that appealing. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of, I guess, you know, one of the, because I, I, obviously I've already, already listened to Tribe and already kind of get the idea when I watched Restrepo yesterday. And uh, one of the things that they were saying, which is right at the end when they're going home, the, the biggest thing you're looking forward to in war is going home but then yeah. it's sort of this double-edged sword because you know that they're going to want to go home because war isn't fun you know being there isn't fun it's that community you don't realize i guess you don't realize how valuable that community and communal living is until you don't have it anymore yeah, that's right so you want to go home then they go home and then they realize how and, and then afterwards they want to go back because yeah. they realize that once you you've you know been able to have a hot shower and eat a burger and some fries and 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 and, and yeah. go go out drinking whenever you want and then you realize that actually you're missing yeah. this this purpose you know the feeling of purpose and that communal living and stuff yeah i mean i think that's one of the it's a sort of common human thing right yeah. you never fully appreciate until it's gone what you have till it's gone yeah and you know so um I mean, I, I mean, there were times out there that I just thought, oh, my God, this sucks. Mm. Like, I mean, there's flies, it's hot, I'm tired, it's dangerous, it's scary. Like, and, um, and now I would, I would give anything to be back there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I would get to, to be able to spend a day out there right now. If I could go back, back in time, go to that place. Really? Spend a day. Oh, I would give anything. Yeah. Really? Absolutely. Uh, I guess. <laughs> One minute, I'm just going to pause quickly. This seems to be a, a, yeah. Some, something's going on. Okay, we're back in. All right. We're back in. There was an NFL team that were about to <laughs> unload all of their sweaty bags into the room that we were in. Um, okay, so last thing, uh, last thing you were saying that you would give anything to go back yeah. and kind of experience that communal life yeah. for one more day. So I guess uh, it, it seems like... Well, the problem is that we don't have anything that replicates that level of integration and communal spirit in the real world, to put it. In it you yeah. know. Is it, have you found anything that comes close? Well, here's the thing. Like, if, you, if you take modern society and collapse it, Mm. You you get it instantly. You get it instantly. Yeah. I mean, it's all we're we're all wired to respond communally to hardship and sure. danger, yeah. right? I mean, the the, the um, erroneous idea, common idea, is that when disaster hits, people just it you know it turns into a mad world of dog eat dog, everyone for themselves, 
People are looting. People are turning on each other. It's just not what happens. Yeah. I mean, p- humans survive when they act collectively, and they die when they act individually. So we're the descendants. I mean, inevitably, a Darwinian theory would have it that we're the descendants of early humans that acted well in a crisis, that acted collectively in a crisis. Um, the ones who didn't act well died out, right? So, so 9-11 in New York, the Blitz in London, the hurricanes, the tsunamis, I mean, all of those things, they bring people together. They bring the survivors together. Yeah. And they're, they're brought together to survive and to grieve. I mean, they're doing, they're doing both things collectively. And, and, and that experience is so powerful that often people wind up very nostalgic, really missing what should have been the worst time in their life. Yeah. Uh, but actually, in a strange way, it was the best time in their life. And I was, when I went back to Bosnia after the Civil War, I was back there a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, I met a woman who'd survived the war. She'd almost lost her leg during a, a you know, a Serb tank round that hit her parents' apartment. You know, it was a, a modern, a modern army had surrounded a modern city and basically used people for target practice for three years. I mean, wow. that, you know, a fifth of the city was killed or wounded. And you know, just civilians, children, old people, and everybody. Hell, it was, it was absolute hell there. And they were all starving, food couldn't get in, it was awful. Um, and she said to me, she said, you know, um, we actually we all missed the war. We're embarrassed to admit it, but we all missed the war because yeah. we were we acted better. We we, we better were better. People. We were better people back then. Wow. And there's even graffiti somewhere in Bosnia that says um, um, things were better when they were bad. Right. So when you take modern society and collapse it, people instantly act very well. What you're what you're asking me is: Are there ways to have that thing without? Without yeah, without the collapse, right? Yeah. Of course, we want it all. We yeah. want we want that close community. Without the tsunami, without the war, of course we do, right? Like it, it almost it almost seems like um, all of those scenarios that you're saying, it seems like everyone's bonded against a common enemy. That's right. You know, so in war, it's against the people shooting at them. In right. the uh, blitz, it's against the, the 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 planes coming in, dropping bombs. Against the hurricanes or tsunamis, yeah. it's against that natural disaster. Everyone's bonding against a common yep. enemy the question is can you get that level of bonding without a right. common common enemy right. right and one one of the things that feels good about it is that in those situations people are quite egalitarian mm. so um you know the 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 hurricane hits houston texas and whether you're a bank president or a landscape gardener i mean it doesn't really matter you know you're a human being and it might be that the the unpa- i mean that the the low wage mexican immigrant gardener saves the life of the bank president. I mean, that happens too, right? Or vice versa. So none of that stuff matters. What matters is that you act well in regards to your fellow human beings who need you. Like that's the thing that gets evaluated. And of course, rich rich people can act very well or very poorly. And and poor people can act well or poorly. I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, that that essential human quality of of, of acting well, it doesn't have anything to do with income or race or anything Mm -hmm. else. And that's what, that's what gets evaluated in a crisis. And, and as a result, there's this wonderful egalitarianism that happens, that you just get judged on your actions, yeah. not the color of your skin or anything else. That's what happens in a platoon in combat as well. I mean, no one cares what your race is if you're a good soldier. And I don't mean, I don't mean the colonel. I mean, no one cares among your peers. Yeah. Um, and so Republican, Democrat, none of that stuff mattered out at Restrepo. And so, so where can we find... In modern society, little enclaves, little spaces, little communities 
where people are judged on their merits, um, where they're where the community needs them and vice versa. Mm. Um, like what? How? Where does that happen? Um, the only place. So I live in a sort of low-income neighborhood in New York, yeah. and it's it's largely Dominican and um, largely Spanish-speaking. And so th- it's very different from the town I grew up in. Yeah. It was a wealthy, yeah. pretty wealthy town. So in that neighborhood, I would say that there is some com- communality. Right there's a collect there's a there's a neighborhood garden and everyone sort of participates in keeping it up. I mean there's some nice sort of collective stuff that happens, which which feels really good. Right, people know each other, they recognize each other. You know it's it's like a little village, and that's for me that's heaven. Right, um, but the only other place that I have found it uh, honestly is at the gym. Yeah, and I, I you know I started boxing a few years ago during a, a bit of a personal crisis in my life. I was 50 years old at the time. I needed something new, something that would challenge me, put me in my head in a different place. Mm. And I started boxing. That's something I'd always wanted to do. There's two things I'd always wanted to do. I wanted to box and I wanted to play accordion. Yeah. I love the accordion. Yeah. I always have. I mean, I've always loved, I love all the musical traditions that yeah. the accordion is, is featured in, is prominent in, right? Yeah. And um, so I started doing both. Awesome. And, and uh but so the boxing gym was, I, I go to a gym called Mendez Boxing in, on 26th Street in New York, a long time basement gym in New York. It's been around forever. Um, and um, what, I, what I pretty, I felt very self-conscious that I was a middle-aged white guy, you know, with, um, um, you know, a fair amount of sort of resources, mm. uh, not a tough guy at all, sure. right? Um, and I was going into this hyper-masculine, tough world, and a lot of very, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of kids in there from very very poor neighborhoods, mm. you know, like, and I felt very self-conscious. And then I realized pretty quickly that it doesn't matter how well you can fight, it doesn't matter what costume you're wearing up on the street to mm. get through your day. It doesn't matter where you were born or how much money you have or don't have or whether you're in prison or not. Or what, I mean, nothing matters except how you act in the gym. Mm. And if you treat other people with respect and if you train hard, you don't even have to spar. Yeah. If you train hard, if you honor the sport and if you respect other people, you're good. And in fact, if you do those things, you act better than a Golden Gloves champion who doesn't act well. Yes. You're respected more than that guy. 100%. Right? Yeah. And there's no prejudice. There's no prejudice against like the black kid from like the low-income neighborhood in Brooklyn. And and there's no prejudice against like the suit that comes in from Wall Street to get in a workout as long as you – whichever case you're in, whichever Mm. group you're in, as long as you act well. And acting well basically means being respectful and honoring the sport, Mm. like the ethos of the sport and working hard. And – Boom! There I was back in the platoon. I mean, basically, like there is like, oh, this is, this is the environment that we all thrive in because we're in control of how we're seen, yeah. right? You know, in high school, if you're if you're good looking, people like you. If you're not, maybe they don't. But that's not your fault, right? You, I mean, you're judged in high school and in society for things you have no control over. Yeah. What family you're born into, what you look like, you know, whatever. In an environment like a platoon in combat or a boxing gym 
you're only judged for how you act. Mm. And that you have control over. Mm. You're a master of your fate, right? And that is such a relief for everybody. And and once I figured that out, uh, like I was like, oh man, this is it. I mean, this is what I need, you know, every day, every other day, as much as I can get, like that is what I need. So I assume you still box now. Yeah. Yeah. So how long have you been doing it for? Uh, four years. Yeah. Yeah. And um, how much of that desire to go to the gym is the boxing and how much of it is the social side of the boxing not necessarily just chatting to people but being part of that sort of it's it, it is like a it's like a tribe you know yeah um because i think with a lot of people and you do you'll occasionally see like you said you'll, you'll have a guy who doesn't care about that and he'll just go into a gym just because he wants to get a workout in he won't talk to anyone he's not really friendly he's right. not really super respectful and there'll be other people who come in and they actually don't even care that much about the boxing right. they just want to be part of that community right Right. Well, I should say that, I mean, there are guys, I think, that just come in and they maybe they feel a little socially awkward or whatever. Yeah. They get in their workout, but they're completely respectful. There's nothing wrong oh, with that. There's nothing wrong. Right, part right, of the right. community. You know? So I'm like, I, I don't socialize in the boxing world, yeah. right? I, I mean, my experience with boxing takes place an hour at a time in that gym sure. several days a week. Like, that's it. And, you know, I, I engage with people. People like me, you know, whatever. I have my sort of place there. Um, but, um, but mostly what I like about it is that I'm, no one's evaluating anyone else by any other terms except boxing terms Yeah. and basic, and basic human conduct, right? If you're an asshole, like the, that's like, all you get judged. That's, on. that's like, right. Outside it's, you can be an asshole and buy your way the, into I, wherever you want to go. That's right. That's right. There, here, in the boxing, and it does, if you're an asshole and a great boxer, they still don't like you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't buy you respect if you're not a good person, right? And so that's what I really liked about it. And the fact that I was a middle-aged white guy who didn't know how to box, but I was working my ass off. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mind getting hit if I was sparring. Like that got me all the respect I needed. Mm-hmm. And I don't, need to, I don't need to go to Golden Gloves. I don't, I, I don't even need to spar. I mean, I, if I just showed up and hit the speed bag for an hour three days a week, that would be fine. Right, but I'm doing it with the proper spirit and the proper yeah. respect, and I was like, "Oh, I'm home," mm. you know. And it was it's such a good feeling, and I hadn't had that feeling since, you know, for ten years since I'd been out at Restrepo. Yeah, and uh, you know, because that, that's kind of the the biggest thing that stood out for me in terms of of when I was listening to Tribe, which was it really resonated with my experiences and sort of the way that I view my team my brazilian jiu-jitsu academy at home and you know even kind of wider than that one of the really nice things about brazilian jiu-jitsu is you go into a gym and yeah it doesn't matter it does feel like you pay with a different currency inside a martial arts club like inside of a sports club you pay with a different currency so your 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 pounds or your dollars aren't worth anything in there you pay with the 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 respect and the way that you act and all of that stuff and um and and you do feel that that communal spirit the even you know one of the big things just in terms of your exposure to different people so you know different genders different sexualities different races different economic backgrounds they're just all together and you may have you know a guy comes in he's a multi-millionaire stock trader he's a white belt and he's going to be taught jujitsu by a brown belt who is you know a, a, a laborer 
and it makes no difference whatsoever yeah, totally. you know he's not going to say no he's not going right. to look down on him mm -hmm. it's just it's all equal and the only thing it's it's how you treat each other and then also your level in jiu-jitsu but even the, the the cool thing that i found and it could be like that in other sports but i only have experience doing brazilian jiu-jitsu which is you can go to any gym in the world yeah. with your gi on your back and you'll be treated like that yeah, there you know right. yeah. i don't know if that's the same i don't know if you've like gone to other boxing gyms and and stuff like that but um it's something that i don't think you get from like a weightlifting gym because it's such a big you know every everyone goes to the gym right even in your little gym there may be a little circle of guys that work out with each other and spot each other but if you go from gold's gym and you pop into la fitness around the corner then you're just in a different gym with a load right. of people yeah, and yeah, yeah maybe right. you've got a big bench but right but with brazilian jiu-jitsu because it's sort of a close-knit community and I feel that you feel because it's so small, you can have that connection with someone, right? Because you know they oh look we 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 have something very similar in common with each other, and you get accepted into these into right. these different teams immediately. It's kind of crazy. Well, you know, one of the essential components of uh, what I would call healthy combat. And 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 I, I and I'm applying this to real war mm. as well. I mean, psychologists know that if you if you have low regard for the enemy, you're actually setting yourself up for psychological harm. Sure, because the enemy will kill your brothers. Mm. Right? They will terrify you. And if you're terrified, if you're being hurt by an equal, if you're being terrified by an equal. There's a dignity, there's an honor there. But if you've decided the enemy are sort of lower than animals, sure, right? Yeah. They're cockroaches, you know, whatever, whatever people call the enemy and have for a million years, and your brothers are getting killed and they're scaring you, then what are you? Yeah. Right? You so, bring yourself down to their level. That's right. Yeah. And you're, you're increasing the psychological harm that you're going to go through when your brother's killed next to you. Yeah. Or when you find yourself like cowering in a foxhole. Mm. And, uh, so with martial arts, with boxing, all of that stuff, I think there's built into the ethos of those endeavors, and they're really noble endeavors, I think, you know, built into the ethos of it is that you respect your adversary, Yeah. right? So, because if you don't, and someone you don't respect kicks your ass, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's lifelong shame. Yeah. You don't, no one wants lifelong shame. So you respect your adversary in case... He kicks your ass, mm. and then you're good. You're like, mm. oh, I, I got my ass kicked by someone that I respect. Yeah, I'm fine, right? It takes a while to get that sometimes. That's though. right. Yeah, that's right. So, so when you walk into a gym, a boxing gym, martial art, you know, whatever, with your gear, no one knows yeah. what you're going to be able to do. Yeah. So they start off with respect in case you kick their ass, sure. right? Yeah. And then everyone's doing that. And then what develops is this sort of interlocking web of mutual respect and honor. And when people violate that, I think they're cast out fairly quickly mm. because you don't want that to take hold. I mean, yeah. then, then it poisons the whole system, right? So likewise, in a platoon, if there's someone really acting badly, and by badly, I mean, just sort of serving themselves, protecting themselves, like they're out of there. I mean, if it's a real combat situation and someone's not acting well, like they just get them out. Does that happen? That you can just you can basically just yeah get re get people out and they change yeah. them over. Really? Yeah, they just transfer. I mean, they just transfer them to a place where they won't get anyone killed. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, because I guess you know 
you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? That's right. That's right. So you want everyone up there. I mean, there's big guys, small guys, you know, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of shapes and sizes and whatever. But everyone up there must be committed to the 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 the, the welfare of the group mm. in their way. You know, it's like my job. I'm the guy on the radio. I will do that until I get a bullet in my forehead. And, yeah. You know, and, and if you have someone who's not, because everyone's depending on me calling it. You know, <laughs> me working the radio, right? And so I can't be looking out for myself. In a situation like that, I don't matter. The group matters. Mm-hmm. And if, I, if everyone does that, everyone in the group is going to be better off. And if one person doesn't do that, everyone's in danger. So that one guy, um, that is, you start to sense that he's just going to start making decisions that protect him and not others, they get rid of that guy very quickly because he's a danger to himself. He's in danger to, a danger to everyone. Like he, it's a terrible dynamic. And the, 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 it's not that the officers know it; it's that the men know it, right? And it just they, it just happens. Mm. I guess that that was the same sort of thing that would happen in a tribal society, right? Uh, absolutely. If someone betrays the tribe, that's sort of the worst punishment. That's the worst crime that you can commit, almost. Absolutely. I mean, if you're, I mean, again, our, our species evolved living primarily in groups of 40, 50, 60 individuals in a harsh environment, not enough food sometimes, enemies, predators, whatever. Um, the worst sin was doing something that helped you and cost everyone else, mm. that lowered their chances of survival. It raised your chance of survival and lowered their chances of survival, taking food when there wasn't enough food, um, b- bullying people and trying to trying to take a... a, a um, disproportionate amount of power Mm. um and you know the the amazing thing about language is that i mean in in a in sort of the animal kingdom the largest the largest male who can dominate any other individual male runs the show Mm. but as soon as you have language and language, I mean, that kind of communication starts actually with chimpanzees. Yeah. So it's not even human. I mean, even at the chimpanzee level, there's enough communication that you can create coalitions. Mm. So I don't care how good you are at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Any, like, three, four guys who are okay at Brazilian jiu-jitsu can take you down, yeah. right? So what, what becomes important is the ability to form coalitions. Mm against the bullying of a large alpha male that has decided to dominate the group in an unhealthy way. Yeah, right? so as soon as you have that ability to communicate, suddenly it goes from a purely physical thing to, I can't dominate without coalitions of my own. That's right. And that, and to do that, you need some basic promise of fairness and justice. Mm. And, you know, like you can create a coalition by saying, listen, I'm not going to abuse my power here. I mean, you won't let me anyway. But this, what I want to do is create a coalition that imposes a reasonable and peaceful order on our little group, right? And when the alpha male comes along who wants to take a disproportionate amount of resources, and those resources would be food and females. I mean, those are two basic, yeah. like, important like ingredients of uh, a successful alpha male's existence, right? Yeah. And so when you... When you, what happens is that coalitions of males will form to stop one alpha male from taking a disproportionate amount of resources mm. and, and sowing discord and hardship in the group, right? And, and that's, just at the, that's just with chimpanzees that happens. Yeah. By the time you get to humans who are really speaking to one another, you can go up to another guy and say, you know what, that guy 
is he's a lot bigger than me and he wants my wife. He's going to take my wife from me. You know, he's going to whatever, like he's going to kill my children. You know, and after he's done with me, he's going to come after you. He's going to come after your wife. And then, you know, this isn't going to end. So we all need to get together and keep that guy from doing that to all of us individually. And we can stop him collectively. And that's how you get coalitions. And that's how you maintain a sort of fairly just social order. Mm. And um, so that ultimately, I think, is the sort of basis for morality and fairness. Yeah. Is, you know, people, and so in early human society, people who were acting badly were, first, they were ostracized within the group. And then you know, the next level of punishment was banishment from the group. And and of course, the ultimate level of punishment is death. I mean, mm. and, and there were there's a lot of evidence that in hunter-gatherer societies, um, abusive alpha males who were who were not acting well, endangering the group, uh, would be put to death by a coalition of males who just mm. killed. You know, it's like it's a, it's a coup. Yeah, I mean, it's right. Ten guys with bows and arrows. Like suddenly, you're shot full of arrows. I don't care how big and strong and scary you are. Mm. Now you're dead. Mm. And so that, and that, and I mean, there are cave paint, I mean, there are rock paintings in Africa showing, you know, a body lying in the ground stuck full of 10 arrows and 10 men standing around with empty bows, you know, and they clearly not a combat situation. That was clearly an abusive alpha male that got what was coming wow. to him. Yeah. Um, I guess kind of going back to, to, we, you know, we got onto that from, uh, talking about martial arts and stuff like that. Um, one of the things that really I really liked about, uh, in Tribe is the what you said after the story about the hat. Okay, and I won't make you tell the story about the Viking hat Viking. because I'm sure you've told it. Uh, I couldn't even imagine how many times you said it. <laughs> well, either way, I'm happy to tell it. Okay, you, yeah. you know what? Uh, yeah, go for it. But but it's what you said afterwards. But we'll get onto that. But if you want to go and tell right. the story, I, I've, I've, I'm trying to remember what I said afterwards. But anyway, uh, you can. I'll prompt, tell, you can I'll tell prompt you. me. Okay, yeah. all right, good. So my father grew up in Europe, and um, including in Spain, and I, you know, and I had a lot of a lot of feelings for those countries. And when I was a young man, you know, twenty two or something, I went, you know, I went back to Spain and um, was traveling around on my own for a bit. And I, you know, I was a really peaceful kid. I didn't get in fights when I was young. I mean, I, you know, whatever. I just wasn't that kind of kid, mm. right? And um, so I wound up in Pamplona during the the, the San Fermin festival, the running of the bulls. Yeah. And I was going to run the bulls in the morning. And anyone who's in that corridor uh, between the barricades when the bulls come through, anyone who's in there at 7 a.m. didn't wake up at 6 a.m. to do this. They've been up all night. Sure. Right. So, um, and half of them are drunk. Right. And um, so <clears throat> I was in this bar and uh, I started talking to these two Spanish, young Spanish guys and they were obliterated drunk, <laughs> right? And one of them had a, a leather bota around his, around his neck and he was drinking from it and he had red wine spilled all down the front of his white t-shirt. I mean, yeah. he, was a, he, was a, he was a mess, right? He was having a good time. He was having a good time. They were great guys. <laughs> yeah. They were really good guys. And you could tell immediately, right? And, you know, if when you meet someone who's like a good person yeah. and they were like, and they were just having the best time. And I, so I spoke Spanish well enough to sort of hang out with them. And so we were drinking and one of them was wearing a, a plastic Viking helmet on his head, like one of a cheap, like cheap thing. Right. And, and suddenly these three Moroccan kids walked in, very tough looking guys. And, uh, and, you know, I'd lived in France when I was young, so I spoke both languages pretty well. So these kids walked in, and one of them, so the biggest, toughest looking of them, walked right up to my new friend and took, reached out and grabbed the Viking helmet and took it. And he said, that's mine. You stole it from me. 
And I started translating because I was the only person who spoke both lang- languages, mm. right? And so my Spanish friend said, no, it's mine. I didn't take it from you. I, I, these guys didn't even know each other. I mean, it was just stupid, st- stupid male yeah. stuff, right? He written Spanish guy reached out and grabbed the helmet, and then all the, everyone, the, you know, the three Moroccans and the two Spanish guys all had their hands on the helmet and started pu- and started pulling. You know, instantly you have a little war, yeah. right? And they start pulling at it, and they're pulling at it, and it's definitely going to go into a big bar fight, right? And um, and the helmet starts to rip, and. The Spanish guy said, "Stop, stop, stop! It's, we're we're destroying, you know, we're ripping it, we're, we're destroying it." And um, so, it, interesting, like these these guys are fighting over something. The one thing they have in common, they're in agreement on, is to not destroy the thing they're fighting over. Sure, right. So the sense. beginning of a negotiation, right? Yeah, like yeah. this is how you know Israel Palestine. You know, it's like this is how things start. Oh, we have some common interest yeah. in not destroying our, the thing you we need love. Something. Right, right, you need right. So. So now they're all glaring at it. They're not pulling, but they're all in a circle around the helmet, holding it, glaring at each other. And so one of the Spanish guys has an idea. And he turns to me. He says in Spanish, will you take my place at the helmet? Yeah. So I'm thinking like... You just got involved. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm in my mind of like, how, how, like, what's the handbook, the guy handbook say? Like, how long do you have to know a guy before you have to back him up in a bar fight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean... <laughs> Is it really half an hour? Is yeah. that all? It t- yeah. Is that all it takes? Depends how drunk you are. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I I don't care about the stupid helmet, right? But here we go with affiliation. Like, mm-hmm. but these guys are my friends. Yeah, I haven't even known them very long, but w- long enough, right? We're in this together. Whatever it is, we're in this together. And I don't even care about the helmet. And it was the fact that the Moroccan guys came in and sort of went after them. That- that's right. That's right. That closeness to you with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the going back and to the common enemy thing. And it's not about the helmet, yeah. right? I don't care about no. the stupid helmet, but I cared about those guys. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, I'm in. So I took my place at the helmet, and he says to me this wonderful formal Spanish way. I mean, he literally made me say some vows. Like He yeah. was like, do you promise on the grave of your grandmother and your ancestors <laughs> that you will defend this helmet as I would. Da, 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 da. Yes, that sounds I, good in Spanish. <laughs> right? Yeah, it sounds great in Spanish, <laughs> yeah. right? Meanwhile, the bar, everything stopped in the bar. Like, it, I mean, everyone is watching what's going to happen, yeah. right? And it's like theater. And so he goes to the bar and he comes back with a big jug of cheap Spanish red wine and he unscrews the cap and he fills the he fills the helmet full of red wine right yeah. to the brim. I mean, I remember it coming up and touching my fingertips. And then he puts his hand underneath it, underneath the helmet, and he, and, he, and he holds it from the bottom, and he says, okay, now everyone let go. Now understand that the San Fermin Festival ran on red wine, yeah. right? Red wine was the sacred fluid. Yeah. Like, no one wants to be the asshole that spills, spills, the, red wine. spills the red wine, right? <laughs> so everyone lets go, and now he's holding the helmet that we'd all been fighting over. And he ex- it was such a sort of noble thing, right? I mean, it, it, he extends his arm, extends his hand, and offers it to the leader of the three Moroccans. Yeah. And he says, and again, I'm translating everything. And he says, you're a guest in our country, so you drink first. So the guy drank from the helmet. He passed it to his left. That guy drank, went around. I drank, went around. Helmet went around the circle. Eventually, the helmet was empty, right? So it got filled up with more red wine. Went around again. Went around again. Another bottle was called for. Pretty soon, the bottle was getting passed around. And then I sort of wandered off. And like an hour later, I look, and the five of them, guys who had been ready to beat each other to a pulp, 
the five of them are just blind drunk, all of them, leaning against a wall, holding on to each other, trying to sing the same, trying to sing in two different languages yeah. the same song, yeah. right? And the plastic Viking helmet is completely forgotten under a table. Yeah. And so what you see there is like these two human, these two human qualities. You know, one is to confront invaders, to confront the enemy, mm. to defend your territory, defend what's yours, defend your, your, your possessions, right, against anything. And the other is to affiliate, mm. right? And you... And these guys, at one point, they went for advers- adversaries. And you just change the DNA of a situation by like a couple of chromosomes, right? I mean, you don't have to change very much. And that energy of male conflict can switch and become the energy of male brotherhood like mm. instantly. It's the same energy. It's like slightly, slightly different. And that's the, you know, I think that's the trick to sort of resolving conflict is understanding you change the tweak a little thing and suddenly we're all in this together when when a moment earlier we were ready to come to blows and and that that's exactly it you know you nailed it there which is uh it's such a cool fucking story as well um but that's it it was the the the, the energy of male violence is so close to male closeness yeah you know? and that's kind of immediately that jumped out to me is that's what you have with boxing in that community yeah. and that's what you have with brazilian jiu-jitsu which is you are legitimately trying to beat the crap out of each other right you know, with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, we were saying earlier, the nice thing about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is that um, it is it is safe for the right. most part. You're, you're, you are trying to do things that in a in a different scenario, you have the ability to kill someone. Right. You know, you're, 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 you're breaking limbs, arms, wrists, shoulders, knees, ankles, and then you're going for the choke, which is kind of the king of all the, the moves in, in right. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is choking people. You know, that's, the, that's the, the top move that you can do because you can snap someone's arm and, you know, they're, they're coked out of their mind or they just don't give a fuck and they'll, they'll keep on going for you. But you can't tough your way out of a choke. You cut the right. blood supply to the brain, you go in to sleep and it's done. And you hold that on for long enough and you can kill someone. And that's basically what you're doing when you do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is you're practicing killing each other and breaking each other's limbs, but obviously you're just not taking it right. that far. Right. And uh, so the, the tap is the only thing that separates that. You know, right. you, when you tap, you're admitting that you got me. One, right. you know, a couple more seconds, this arm is broken. A couple more seconds, I'm going to sleep. So I'm going to tap out. You're going to let go. And now we're going to practice it all over again. You know, right. you, you got me this time and now I'm going to try and get you again. Right. But it is 100%. And that's the difference with boxing. If you come out, you can't really practice stuff like boxing at 100%. No. Right, because right. you knock someone out instantly. Yeah. You know, you come yeah. out, you land one big, you know, if you, if you start throwing on... um uh, punches as hard as you can someone's going to come and call it they're going to break it up they're going to go what the hell are you doing but in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu you know you're not as long as you're not snapping on arm bars and leg locks and stuff like that in terms of the control and throwing people and sweeping people you go 100% right so you really are g- trying to you're out to get each other but at the same time the second the buzzer goes you shake hands and there is this incredible closeness that yeah. you have from yeah. you, you're putting your life in the other person's hands yeah. Because if if, they, they, if you don't, you're trusting them to respect when you submit. Right. So there's a lot of, uh, and, and, and it's just that line, that, that closeness, but the, the similarity or just the, the, how close that male bonding and the male violence is to each other really yeah. stood out in, in that regard, you know? Yeah. So I found that really interesting. Yeah, it is. And, and, that, and that sort of mutual trust, I remember our, our mutual friend, Josh, yeah. he was telling me a few years ago that he was 
training with someone and he tapped and the guy didn't let go and he and he and he caused him to black out yeah he went to sleep and josh felt completely betrayed i mean he really he really shook his entire relationship with the sport for a little while that so we we were talking just a second ago about sort of the worst crime you could commit in a tribe in a tribal society right the absolute worst crime and it is there literally couldn't be anything worse in a brazilian jiu-jitsu academy than not respecting someone tapping Right. Like that is grounds to never, you're never coming back right. almost immediately. If you see someone, you know, and, and it happens sometimes, um, you know, the person will uh, make a noise or they'll try and tap or they'll tap the floor and the person won't see it. Right. And it will be a little bit late. Right. But if someone taps and that person sees the tap and, and, and doesn't let go, you're done. You're done. You never come back. If I saw someone do that in, a, in in one of my classes, you're done. You're never coming back. You know, if if you don't tap to something and you let yourself get put to sleep or you let your arm get broken, you're in a bit of trouble because you're, you're an idiot. Right. But you've hurt yourself. Right. But when you, you know, there has to be that level of trust. There literally is nothing worse that you could do in a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy than not let go when someone taps out. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. Right. Right. No, and, and that makes sense because otherwise the whole system would fall apart. Exactly. It's just based you're, on you're trust. Not, you're not playing anymore. You're, you're, you're killing each other. You're literally right. killing each other. Right. When you take away, like I said, when I'm describing it, I'm saying you're, you're, tr- you're, you're trying to kill each other and the tap separates that yeah. from, from what we're actually doing, from the sparring, yeah. from real life, you know, where you're hurting each other. When you take that tap away, when it's not respected, there's no line there. You're right. going straight to, to really maiming each other where it can be so dangerous. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a very I mean it's a very noble it's a very noble thing. Yeah, yeah we're people, talking about yeah. I think I think you should give it a go for sure, you know. I'm not yeah. there, there's a lot uh New York is one of the you live in New York, right? Yeah. New York is one of the kind of hubs of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and you know Josh Josh is a great guy so you should yeah. uh, I would go straight to his academy. Yeah, you should yeah. do. Yeah. yeah I think, I'd like I think to try it. It would be and and kind of for you we were talking beforehand um obviously you've never competed in in boxing. Um and you know it's not something I would ever advise someone right of your age to do you could right. i would never say you can't do it but i would never say you know right. what you should you should go <laughs> you should go glove up and yeah. you know try and smack someone around but brazilian jiu-jitsu you can get that it, the competition's a lot more accessible to everyone right you know so in in boxing you don't compete unless you're pretty serious about it but right. in brazilian jiu-jitsu your white belts compete right that people compete after six months of training right you know out right. of shape there they, they you compete in you've got uh, age divisions up to 75 80 years old that's great you that's know? amazing white white belt masters five featherweight divisions where you've got two guys who and you know i've i've, I've run tournaments as well and i've literally matched guys up he said you know my dad's been training for six months he's in his 60s he wants to compete against someone else in their 60s and we've made it happen right. Right. so you can you can do that because it is a lot safer so i think um when it goes back to the whole uh manhood and testing yeah. your self and all of that stuff Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is such a great thing for, because whenever you're talking about that, it's really, it's just putting yourself outside your comfort zone. Right. And when I hear that, I just think that's what I'm telling people to do when they're going to compete. Right. You know, you're not going to enjoy this. It's not, it's not a pleasant, you're not going to enjoy the experience leading up to it. Right. It's not pleasant. Yeah. You know, in the same way that I, probably a lot of war isn't pleasant. Right with the objection of doing something putting yourself outside your comfort zone it isn't until after you've come out of that that's right that you get the right. that you look back on it and go i'm so glad i did it yeah 
you know? Yeah, and, and then it starts to feel necessary. Yeah. You know, like that process becomes necessary to how you experience life and who you, how you see yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, so I think uh, uh, I'd love to see what you thought of, 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 of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu after trying it for a little bit. And it's a super, um, it can be a really cerebral sport as well because there's right. so many different techniques. It different, the biggest difference really um, between uh, other fighting sports, especially striking, you know, boxing's like six, six punches. But you learn, you learn them on your first day, and then it takes a lifetime to perfect them. Yeah, it's it's how you it's how you use those different yeah. strikes. Yeah. With Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, it's almost an infinite number of right. techniques. Right. You will never learn them all. You know, you've got kind of the 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 expansive universe right. of techniques out there. There's the observable universe of techniques that you'll ever learn, and then even you know just the earth of techniques that you'll that you'll know, and then a city of techniques that you actually use regularly. You know, so there's just so much stuff out there and it makes it, it's, it's never the same. It's just so, um, sort of organic and, uh, complex and limitless really. So it's a really, it's an interesting sport to do. I've, I've, I've got to try. I've got to try it. I would really like to. I mean, Josh has been telling me for years, listen, man, you don't want to get hit in the head. You don't need to get hit in the head. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I mean, what I, you know, I train really hard. I spar once in a while with people I know pretty well. Mm -hmm. And, And there's an interesting dynamic actually in sparring in, in sort of friendly sparring. Yeah. Which is there's a sort of an agreement to not hit too hard, but to hit as hard as the other guy is. Yes. Well, you can see where that goes, right? One, yeah. <laughs> you you think that you're going ten yeah. percent, and and you think that he just went fifteen percent, right? So you are like fifteen percent. All right. All right. You want to play that way? Yeah, we'll yeah, play yeah. that way, and then <laughs> and it <laughs> pretty soon you get two old guys clobbering each other, right? <laughs> So, yeah, it's, diff- it's it's that's exact. It's exactly the same in Brazil. There's like a it's like a meme, you know that. Yeah. It's a it's an on running joke that the instructor said, you know, roll light. Everyone says there's no such thing as rock. You know, rolling was what we call sparring. And yeah, right, yeah, right, right, right. And uh, they'll go, you know, let's roll light. I'm a little bit injured. I'm a bit tired. Yeah. I had a long day. Let's roll light. Yeah. And you roll light. And you'll think that you're rolling light. And you think he's taking the piss a little bit. That's right. So you up it up a little yeah. bit. And he yeah. goes, this guy's just upped it up. I'm going to yeah. up it up. Yeah. And the only time that you can't up it anymore is when you're going 100%. Right. That's right. No, it's exactly <laughs> only, how it, I know. It's, it's hilarious. Only, it's the only time you can't up it anymore is when you're both going 100%. It's not what you wanted to do, but at yeah. least you're both on the same page. Though. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a cool thing. And, and actually, uh, you know, going back to even before we were talking about um, boxing and stuff like that, which yeah. is that was sort of your tribe that you found coming out of, you know, basically coming out of the military, you know, even yeah. though you weren't serving, you yeah. were coming out of yeah. the military because you were coming out of that, 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 that situation. And, um, sh- you know, it must be so important for soldiers coming out that transition in and those that are suffering with all of the mental yeah. health problems that come with that transition out. So many of them must, especially when, you know, we we're talking earlier about that, that misdiagnosis almost of PTSD. They have no idea that they're suffering because they're lacking a communal spirit or do right. they, or do they feel that? Are they just depressed and they don't know why? Or are they depressed thinking, you know, is it, I wasn't depressed when I was in the army, but I'm depressed now. So I must miss the army. Right. Or do they actually go, the thing I miss is the brotherhood. I, uh, it depends. Um, I mean, honestly, I've some people have read my book. Some veterans have read my book and written me and said, mm. "Now I know why I was depressed." Mm. You articulated what I was missing. I knew I was missing something. I couldn't yeah. quite put my finger on it. I thought I missed the war, 
but it wasn't the war. It was the you know, it was yeah. it was being in a small unit and now I found something like that in the United States and now I realize that, the, that in your book made it clear to me that like what I was missing was other a commu- community of other people. Um so I and I think some people just get depressed and have no idea why, but it's you know they're, they're they're living they're living a life that doesn't feel as meaningful as the one they lived overseas, and they, and they just think, oh, I've got to go back overseas, and so they so they decide to become a military contractor. Mm. They think that they're working for Blackwater in Baghdad or whatever. I mean, Blackwater no longer exists, but whatever it's called now, they're working as a pri- you know private contractor in in Kabul. Rather, um, we're not in Baghdad anymore. That they'll get that feeling again, yeah, right. But they might not because they're not necessarily as a it's contract. Not the same. They're not the same. It yeah. may not. They not may not be in a unit like that, stuck up on a hilltop, you know. Like, so I think my book and, and other people's works too, obviously. But I think my book has helped sort of clarify that for people. Mm. And then I guess what is sort of in your mind, what is the answer to that um, tra- in, yeah. transitioning disorder? Well, the trick is. I mean, so historically, I mean, it's a historical fact that the Hells Angels, which is a sort of outlaw motorcycle gang, the United States, you I'm sure everyone knows oh, yeah. the phrase, right? Um, were started by World War II veterans who came home and missed the intensity and the drama and the um, fraternity, the camaraderie of a small group operating you know, we sort of by their own, by their own design, by their mm. own standards. Yeah, I had no idea about that. Yeah, those yeah. are those are veterans. Wow. And um, and I, I, I've never been particularly drawn to motorcycles. I don't really quite get it. But I was talking to a guy who is really into motorcycles and has ridden in groups. Right. I mean, that's the thing. It's not they're not just riding by themselves. What they do is they get together in groups. That's the whole point, isn't that's it? That's the is whole safe. point. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's true. You know, like we, we, we have motorcycle gangs around here, you know, right. just groups of motorcycle clubs, I should say. And um, I tell you what, when you're on the motorway and and 20 bikes ride up, yeah. you get the fuck out of the yeah, way. That's right. And you don't even go near it. That's right. You know, it's like that's it really right. does work. That's right. And so with the experience of being in a group like that, and I know it from a guy who is, he was trying to explain to me what if wh- why motorcycles are so compelling to him. And he said, you know, you're in this group and we, we send guys ahead to intersections to make, you know, to, to block the intersections so we can go through safely. And we got outriders and they have a whole system, yeah. right? He said, just the, 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 the roar of all those engines operating in unison, right? That, the, the, just the sheer, um, the coordination, the sort of choreography of a, of a motorcycle, a group of motorcycles moving through space. Just the choreography of it is just exhilarating. Yeah, and you know he's, he was describing. I mean, he was describing small group dynamics, right? He was describing individual individuals disappearing into the dynamics of a group, and then they're all safer that way. I mean, that's the military, and not, moreover, that's our evolutionary past, right? So that the, the original outlaw, you know, motorcycle gang was a group of veterans who came home and missed it so much that they decided to do something about it. Being uh, outside the law i mean the trick is so the trick is how do you get that feeling without breaking the law yeah. right you don't want to be an outlaw right yeah. you want to the point is to serve society not to um harm it and uh so but being outside the law create necessarily creates solidarity because you need each other because you're sure. all outlaws yeah, right yeah. so i understand the impulse yeah. to go outside the law because it creates that solidarity 
But don't do that, right? I mean, to try to figure, I mean, the trick is how do you create that solidarity without breaking the law and, mm-hmm. and, and, and being a good citizen? You know, I mean, that's really any person's highest calling is serving their community. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's really what we need to all strive for. And, and you know, w- while recognizing that that group dynamic is extremely powerful, but how can we harness it for good rather than for, you know, terrorizing people or whatever the hell's angels sort of like wind up doing? Yeah, you know, it's it's such a good point. It's the, these as a group, there's kind of two different tasks. You know, two different, I guess, objectives of that, which is the the close group dynamics and the serving of the greater community, and. Um, when you think about it, gang, you know, tr- another word for tribes would be gangs. Yeah. Gangs are like an inherently a really negative, right. have neg- ne- negative connotations to them because they are outlaws and they operate, you know, against right. the law and all of that stuff. But it, you start to understand the appeal. Why are you getting involved with a gang like this? Yeah. Well, because, you know, I don't have any purpose. You know, you, you have young kids from, 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 yeah. uh, backgrounds where they don't have particularly many opportunities. Yeah. And they don't have a close-knit family. They don't have any sort of yep. community. But they can get invited into a group where they are a valuable member. And even though they're not serving the greater society, they're serving their own small gang. Right. You know. Also, there's a matter of personal security. So what they found, there was a study that the young boy, the boys who were more vulnerable, more likely to join a street gang, were... Boys who didn't have fathers yeah. at home. So if you're a if you're a 12 year old boy and you have a father, you're under his protection, right? And you feel safe. If you don't have a father, and you're a a, a lone actor in a dangerous neighborhood, you're a 12 year 14 year old boy in a dangerous neighborhood, and you're not affiliated. You don't have a dad, mm. and you're not affiliated with a gang. You're screwed, you're, right? You're, you're really incredibly your own, yeah. vulnerable. So those are the boys that join gangs because group defense is more effective than than loan defense, right? I mean, it's just obvious. And um, those gangs that seem so destructive and nihilistic, I'm guessing that if Chicago or L.A. or Baltimore or whatever were attacked by an outside force, what, I mean, I don't know what, Martians, the yeah, Russians, whatever, matter, it, yeah. whatever it is – that those gangs, they're armed, they're organized, they're committed, that those gangs would actually defend their cities. I mean, yeah. I'm, I, yeah. I, the Bloods totally and the Crips, from, yeah. I, I can't prove it, but that's my that's but You my could guess. totally see a scenario where those two gangs would join forces to fight totally. against that common enemy. Totally. Yeah. Like, we got guns, we got organization, we know how to fight, like, fuck that. We're not going to let these people take over. Mm. And, um, you know, I know in Sarajevo during the war... You know, there were some very serious sort of armed mafias in Sarajevo. I mean, all over Eastern Europe, all over the Balkans, obviously. Yeah. And when the Serbs surrounded Sarajevo and besieged it and started attacking it, it was the one of the core militias that defended that city and kept it from being overrun was the mafia. And they made an accommodation with the Bosnian government. Like, look, if you allow us to operate our little mafia scams unhindered, you know, we'll defend the city. I mean, they had a sort of an accommodation with the government, wow. but they were out there and knew how to fight. They had guns, and they were very bad guys. They were very tough guys. They weren't soldiers. They were very, very tough guys, though. Mm. And um, and they they defended that city. And so, and you know, up until the war started, they were not doing anything good for Sarajevo. Trust me, you know. But then, but they were they were necessary for the defense, and they did it. What happened to them afterwards when it all calmed down a bit? 
I mean, I you know after the war ended, I mean there was there yeah. was such chaos that I mean I don't, I don't know quite what happened. I think, but it's quite it's interesting to think yeah. about. Like yeah. afterwards, after kind of, they're a bunch of outlaws. They they integrated into the rest of the you know wider society, protecting yeah. them. Right when the threat went, yeah, it's like it makes you ponder whether they would have gone. You know what? We can actually continue to serve the community, right? Or do they just go? Okay, well, the enemy, the the wider enemy's gone. We're just going to go back to operating within ourselves. I, you know, and that's a good question. I don't yeah. know exactly. I mean, a lot of them were killed. I mean, there were I mean, in feuds with each other, later feuds with each other, or in combat. Like, like a lot of them were killed. So, I, and actually, it's a really good question. Like yeah. what they did afterwards. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it just it, it, you know when it going back to sort of what um, what uh, people can do, soldiers can do coming out in that transition. You're thinking. You know, almost like a, instead of sending them directly back home, they should be sent into halls, into dormitories yeah. with each other, you know, yeah. where they can still live uh, in sort of a, a, a little more of a communal society. I don't know whether there's any benefit to sort of weaning them off of that opposed to just you're in a group of 25 and you're and then you're living in a house on your own. Or I, th- You know, I think if they could transition as a unit back to the, this country, well, back to America – and then gradually adjust, sort of acclimate to civilian life. You'd probably have fewer, fewer casualties, as it were. Mm-hmm. I mean, fewer psychological casualties or real casualties from overdoses and suicide and what have you. And I think my guess is that would be better. I mean, I'm not saying that as a psychologist. I just that's my instinct. yeah from your yeah. Exper- from yeah. your experience. Um, but yeah, the, I guess the, you know the whole problem is is that there's no obvious way of getting that sort of anything similar to, to, to that wartime camaraderie when you're back home and there isn't a threat constantly on you, you know, 24 hours a day. Yeah. You're not, I mean, you're just not, um, right. You're not going to get the same. It's just, it's just the way that society is built now, you know? Right. And, and you know, there's, there's wonderful benefits to not having an ongoing mortal, you know, like existential threat, like constantly hovering over you. I mean, you know, (laughs) like, Life's pretty unpleasant that way too, and it does squash a lot of other very mm. wonderful human endeavors. You know, what would we? You know, would we have if we were living like that? Would we really have classical music yeah. and philosophy and great literature? You know, probably not. You, you probably wouldn't have any recreational stuff. Full stop. You wouldn't have anything that you didn't need. Yeah, right. I mean, it's right. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, uh, we're very, very. You know, let me just say again, we're yeah. extremely fortunate to live in the society we. Yeah, do. I guess it's it's it's. Just because we're missing something doesn't mean you're saying that the entire right. system is is, cor- is 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 fucked up. Right. Just because you're saying there's this one aspect where we've progressed as a society and that's allowed us to drive cars and right. fly planes and use the internet and right. record podcasts and stuff like that. But in doing so, it just so happens that the natural course that, that these westernized civilizations have taken has meant that we've missed this one seemingly crucial yeah. aspect of our instinctive human nature, which is that close community. That's right. You know, you could, you could, everyone could live in, you know, giant, very nice blocks of flats of a hundred families and still have the internet and classical music. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's it could right. have happened a different way. It just so happens that it didn't. Yeah. And, and let me say, I mean, you know, I don't want to sound like too much of a communist or whatever, but there is in in a capitalist system, and capitalism is an incredible generator of innovation and learning and yeah. science and knowledge. I mean, it's a it's a it's a amazing engine of of, of very positive change. 
But in a capitalist system, you don't want clusters of six families to all share one toaster. Yeah. Or one stove yeah. or one tractor or whatever. You want every family to have its own toaster mm. and stove and tractor because then you sell more. And so there, the society, because it's based in capitalism, which again brings a lot of good along with whatever the downside is, that system encourages people to not share their resources. That's the word. It's share, isn't it? That's right. When and there's a surplus, you don't need to ever share. And it's that sharing that kind of brings the connection. That's right. And so in poorer communities, whatever the stress is, of poverty is, the sharing of resources, the, the, you know, the, the, the necessity of sort of collective action, like I got to build a house. I can't do it by myself. I'm going to get all my neighbors to help me build a house in one weekend. And when then Joe needs to build a house some year in the future, I'll help Joe, right? So societies that are all pulling, like literally or metaphorically, taking their water from the same village well, they're all invested in clean water, building a well, having a place where everyone can get their water. I mean, they're all invested in those sort of collective actions. And as you as societies get wealthier, everyone has their own indoor plumbing. They don't need to go to the well, right? They don't. Need, they can hire a contractor to build their house, right? They don't need Joe. Doesn't need you, and you don't need Joe. There's a liberation there from the group, but there's a real loss there too. And what what capitalism does, as societies get more affluent, it encourages more and more families to all have everything they need. That every family has everything it needs, right? That maximizes their participation in the economics in in, in the economy but it minimizes their participation in the community. Mm. And there's a real human loss there. You know, is there must be a sweet spot, a kind of middle ground where we have the benefits of capitalism and retain some community. I mean, that's the that's the goal, but but capitalism incentivizes this sort of alienation in family units, which is which I think is so toxic. There I, there was one study that I saw that compared depression rates in North America Women, women in North America compared to women in Nigeria. Now, Nigeria is one of the uh, most chaotic, one of the poorest, dysfunctional countries in Africa. I've worked there. Um, the highest depression rates were urban women in North America, which is yeah. also the wealthiest group. The lowest rates of depression were women in rural Nigeria. That is because those women were had to share resources because they were very poor, and that buffered them against depression. Mm. That's it's just insane to think that, isn't it? You 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 always think that the more resources you have, the more protected you are against these sort of things. Right. But it turns yeah. out like the reality is that the the issue is too much resources. That's right. right? And it, it, even whilst, whilst you're explaining that, and you're talking about you know each family can be self sufficient essentially. That's the problem. Everyone's self sufficient. Therefore, you don't need to rely on anyone else. Right. And without having to rely, there can be no deep meaningful connections right. you can still have friends but if, right. you never, if you never need to call on your friend to help you out how right. close can you ever be right you know like if you've got a best you know your, your best buddy has been there for 10 years you say this guy he's the closest guy that i'm with in the world because when i'm in trouble he can he comes help me out and when right. he's in trouble i help him out right. if you never need anyone to help you out how can you ever build those right. sort of deeper connections yeah, absolutely but but you know when you're talking about that i'm thinking that happens actually within a family as well because if you think yeah. about it there's Everyone's got their own phone. Yeah. Everyone can have their own car. Everyone has their own room. Everyone yeah. has their own, you know, it, like even within that small 
like micro community of a family, you can actually start to separate within that. Absolutely. And, you know, this is the first time in history that large numbers of people have been wealthy enough to have their own home and to have every child in the family have their own room. Yeah. It's unheard of. Let alone their own iPad. Yeah. I mean, right. No, exactly. I mean, you know, most of the world still today and certainly through history, families, no one had their own room. And families didn't necessarily even have their own their own space. I mean, people lived collectively and certainly families lived and slept collectively, you know, still in most of the world, families sleep in the same space, parents, children, everybody. It's all, you know, cousins, you know, whatever, it's all sort of shared space. And, um, you know, there's obvious downsides to that, but the upside is this like enduring, very profound sense of security. I'm safe. I'm physically safe. I'm emotionally safe. You know, my, my, my sister may be annoying the hell out of me, my sister was sleeping right next to me, yeah. maybe annoying the hell out of me. But I, but I know as part of this group, I'm profoundly safe. And what happens to me is going to happen to everybody. We're good. Mm, yeah, I guess it kind of it, it goes back to the, you know, when a kid has a nightmare and they want their parents to come and sleep in the oh, room. Totally, yeah. Because they feel that, well, as long as there's someone else in the room, whatever happens to me is going to happen to yeah, them as right. well. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're social primates, like chimpanzees don't take their infants and put them in the, put them in the bushes mm. 20 yards away to go to sleep. I mean, cause they die. Mm. Right. And so when, when, when people in, it's only Northern European society that does this, when they take young babies, children, and put them in a room by themselves and close mm. the door, say good night and close the door. And the infant, the, ba- the child is in a room in the dark by itself, eight hours at a time, all night long. All of our wiring as primates, all of that child's wiring is telling it, you're going to die. Mm. You're totally defenseless. You're alone. Your parents are somewhere else. You're totally vulnerable. You're going to die. And that's why kids scream and yell, of course, when you put them in a room by themselves. It's the only sensible thing to do. And, and that not sleeping with one's children is it's not the norm. Right, it's not the human norm, and that started very recently in English society and Northern European society. It's absolutely an aberration, and in my opinion, it's not very good for children. What caused that? I, I can't remember. Did, do you mention it in Tribe? I talk about it that in Tribe, and yeah. after I wrote the book, I was told, and I haven't confirmed this, but I was told on good authority that that actually started. I mean, first of all, you have to ha- be wealthy enough to have another room to yeah. put your kid in. Yeah, yeah. Right. So if you're, uh, you know, a, you know, Chinese rice farmer, you know, you know, Chinese peasant, like you're not, you know, there's no options about sticking your kid in his own bedroom, right? Yeah. Um, so first of all, you need enough wealth. But um, apparently, it started with the great uh, London gin epidemic. In the eighteen in the seventeen hundreds, gin, gin, and there was some rot gut gin that people that just it was like the crack the crack cocaine in New York in the nineteen eighties. It was the, like crack cocaine of London society in no the seventeen hundreds. And I was told I haven't confirmed. Yeah, yeah. I was told this, you know, in the seventeen eighties, something like that. You're right, as the industrial revolution was like getting going and um, was starting up, and uh, so apparently, people were parents were getting really drunk and going to bed and smothering their infants. No. Right? And they're too drunk to sort of know that they're lying on top of their child, and they were killing them. And that doctors decided that it would be easier to tell people to put their kids, to tell their to have their kids sleep elsewhere yeah. than it would be to get them to stop drinking. 
And so that what they and, and again, I don't, I haven't confirmed that this sure. is true. I was just told this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's a really interesting idea that that, and that and that what started was that people in England, in London particularly, started putting their children elsewhere to sleep. That became the norm. Uh, and then they convinced themselves that it was psychologically healthier for the child. Because you've got, you, you've got a, um, when you start doing something, even if it's completely selfish, you can't tell yourself, I'm doing right. this selfishly. I need to think of a reason. That it's better, right. You know, you've got, right. you've got to convince yourself that this is good for the child. So the lie is that if you sleep with your child, the child will not grow up to be independent. That you have to traumatize them with independence early on so they adjust to it. And then they'll be nice, independent children. And that's, there's absolutely no data to support that. I mean, you know, what it seems to be is that you, if you provide an extremely um, close, intimate environment for your child, what that child never, ever doubts your proximity. Mm-hmm. I mean, your physical proximity. I mean, safety comes from having someone bigger than you protect you, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're a child, right? Yeah, yeah. And so as if they're if they have no, not even a fleeting doubt about your physical proximity, that they can count on you, oh, I hear something scary, something's going on, oh, but dad's right there. I mean, I can smell him, I can feel him, I can touch him if I reach my arm out, I'm good. Like, that creates an independent child because they have this basis of safety from which to set it's forth confidence. into the world from. That's right, it's confidence. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'll venture, I'll explore, because I can always run back to home base. If you grow up not thinking that home base is really there, that there is no safe space because you're sleeping in your own bedroom, right? Um, there's nowhere to run back to, and it, and, it, and it makes children actually quite insecure. It makes them quite fearful and tentative. And I was that way. I mean, I, from day one, I mean, from the, my first day on earth, I was put in my own room. Wow. And I, I never slept one night with my parents. And, uh, and that was the norm. I was born in 1962 in, in you know, sort of affluent North America. Like, that was the norm. Um, that didn't make me into a courageous, adventurous, intrepid person. It made me, you know, as a child, I was very fearful. I mean, I was really, and I, I mean, it's not how you, you create a healthy child. And, and as evidence, what I would offer is every other primate species on the planet. We are primates. We're social primates, right? We share 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees. Yeah. And if you think that's normal behavior, look at the rest of the human race, the rest of human history, and the rest of the primate kingdom. Nobody does this. It's completely insane. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, the idea that you can sort of affect the, the, the future psychology of your child from one day old is is yeah. insane isn't it yeah the idea the idea that anything that you could do that early on and it is the, the problem when it comes to um when it comes to raising children is that you've got one shot per child yeah. right, it's, right. It's, it's it's difficult you don't get to you know it's not like building a car where you've, you fuck it up the first time oh fuck <laughs> it okay well let's just start again or you know right. i'm just going to change that piece you've just got one shot and um so if someone tells you like this is what you do and this is what happened to you, you're like, well, I have to do this. Yeah. I'm not even gonna. If you went to someone and said, you know, I think that if you did so and so, the child's gonna end up way better. You're not gonna be that receptive to doing anything that yeah. you naturally, you know, that that you've been taught or society has told you to do beforehand because you're not gonna risk. I've got one shot at this. You know what? Maybe that would help, but I'm just going to stick with yeah, what right. I think is safe. That's right. So it's kind of uh, it's, it's it's a difficult thing, but it's it is strange that um, yeah. And I think it might have been somewhat mentioned in Sapiens or another book that I was reading about sort of that weird um, 
the odd behavior of isolating a child from such a young age. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just histor- historically, it's not the norm. It doesn't make and, any sense. And, yeah. and it, no other primates do that. Yeah. Um, so going back to what I was saying uh, uh, just before that about um, kind of each kid having their own phone or iPad from a pretty young age and being connected to the internet and social media and all of that stuff. I wanted to get what your opinions were on social media, especially for kids. Sort of, there's this conundrum and a bit of a, you know, hypocrisy between are you becoming closer with people connecting online or are you isolating yourself from human contact in person by having more online contact? Right. With not in person. Okay, so I, I mean, just sort of full disclosure, I have a flip phone. I don't, oh, have, really? a, I don't have a smartphone. I, I, that, that doesn't surprise me for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a conscious decision. I've never had a smartphone. What I, what I don't want is to have to answer email all day long. Sure. I don't want the intrusion of, you know, the mostly petty concerns that yeah. surface in email to sort of pollute my thinking during the day so that I actually can't have idle thoughts that might lead to really profound insights that might sure. lead to my next book or whatever. Like, I, I mean, I just want my brain to be able to do what it does naturally rather than turning myself into a 24 hour a day receptionist in yeah. a company, in my own company. If you right? thought that, if you thought the email was bad, you're lucky you don't have Facebook messenger. Or anything yeah. Like that. Right. <laughs> and you know, I, 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 um, I mean, I have a Facebook account, but it's on my laptop and, and I don't use it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I use it. So, you know, it's people like if you, we, so you and I know someone in common, mm. uh, Maria. But actually, she reached me through Facebook. Yeah, right. So she didn't have my email address. I didn't know her, but I have Facebook so that people that I don't know can reach me, and if they have a reasonable or interesting re- request, yeah, um, that I can respond. Sure. Like, but I don't, so that's my involvement with it. But what I would say is that the phrase "social media" is like the great lie of our generation. It's not social media. There's nothing social about it. Sure, uh, it's profoundly anti-social media, mm-hmm. and by that I mean that people engaged in it um, are not engaged with the community that's immediately around them. So if you you know walk into a restaurant and there's a group of young people at a table, very often you'll actually see them all focused on their phones yeah. rather than on each other. In any other context, that's profoundly antisocial behavior. Yeah. Right? If you walked in and saw a table full of people all reading books, like, they're antisocial. I mean, no, okay, so they're reading books. That's fine. Books are great. But don't tell me that's social behavior. Sure. It's antisocial behavior. Yeah. Just because you're exchanging data with someone online and it feels like a human connection, you're really just exchanging data. You're actually not having a human exchange. And only in the most abstract sense are you having a human exchange. Um, And I, you know, it can sort of prove that by saying that you don't know the person you're you're having an exchange with. You might think it's a twenty twenty year old woman. It's actually a sixty five year old guy. Yeah, you have no idea, right? At the end of the day, it's data. It's ones and zeros, right? You know, I mean, that's all you're doing. And there's a very important role for that ex- for exchange of information, for that sort of like affiliations of people with common concerns to connect online, 
we all want to, you know, there's a group of people that wants to save the environment and a group of people that wants to do this or that or that lives in a certain town and they want to go bowling every week. I mean, that's great. Like that, that's, that's what the internet is made for. Yeah. But to substitute like basic human experiences of, uh, of love and loyalty and those kinds of things, to substitute those things for an online experience is profoundly antisocial. And I think if you look at the suicide rate, the depression rate, the rate of anxiety in young people, um, if you look at those, those rates, they're all rising. And in fact, they're rising steeply since the sort of advent of social media. Yeah. It's really hard to argue that, that social media is actually psychologically healthy for people. Yeah, you know, that, that is one thing that does seem to be sort of aggressively on the rise, which is that like, anxiety. Which is like I don't know if you've got any insight into that or whether you've looked into that at all. I, I mean, I think anxiety comes. Uh, one of the causes of it is, I mean, it's apprehension about what's going to happen to you. Uh, it's a sense that you don't control your circumstances. It's a sort of excruciating self consciousness. Mm. The problem with social media is that your um, online identity is vulnerable to attack, to judgment, to critique, twenty four hours a day. Yeah. Right. So there's never, a, I mean, there's never a respite. I mean, if you're the least popular kid in school and school lets out at 3.30 in the afternoon and you're home by four, at least by, at least when you get home at four, you're good yeah. until 8 a.m. the next day, sure, right? Yeah. Like that's your safe haven. With social media, there is no safe haven. Mm. And I can't prove this, but I'm guessing that the steep rise in anxiety in young people yeah. um, started. The, the the rise I'm I'm guessing started with the uh, with the onset of social media, and that it's um, it's a, that is a direct result of that. If mm. if if social media were making people healthier and psychologically healthier and happier, you would see suicide, depression, anxiety go down, be going down. But they're not; they're going up. So it's really hard. It's hard to argue that it's somehow doing something sure, good. Yeah, yeah. I guess it kind of all goes back to the whole uh, how slowly humans evolve compared to how quickly evolution and society can change. You know, it takes hundreds of thousands of years for like proper genetic evolutionary attributes to evolve. Yeah. Uh, but you, you know, Facebook can be started yeah. overnight and be have a billion members within what ten years of them being up or something crazy. Yeah. So. Um, there's definitely when it comes to social interactions it is really modern very very recently that you've been able to even just talk to someone without standing in front of them yeah you know yeah that's uh, right. let alone text them not even not even being able to hear the tone of their voice but literally just the words that they're thinking sent to you and you're reading those words right you know right. so yeah that's right yeah it's that's it's, right yeah it's interesting um i kind of continuing on from that a little bit do you see um i guess this change in society where it's become less tribal and therefore open to all of these different issues that come with that even though we've got all of these positives that come with that as well uh well not that come from not being tribal but come from the other things that society's you know changing into do you see it getting worse and if so, how do you see it getting worse? You know, what else could happen? Or what do you see for 150, 100 years into the future? Well, I mean, the thing that's hard to tell, I mean, what, 
we don't know where the technology is going. Mm. And certainly in my lifetime, technology has isolated people more and more and more. So uh, before television, um, people socialized more with their neighbors. I mean, you know, neighbor, it, 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 there wasn't entertainment that you could turn on. People, other people were entertainment. Mm. And so there was much more socializing, you know, the, and the telephone, the television, the telephone, the internet. I mean, all of these things have allowed people to get more and more of their human experience alone by themselves. I mean, you know, I mean, I was talking to someone whose teenage son, that he'd never dated a girl that his girl, his girlfriend lived hundreds, hundreds of miles away. He'd never met her. Yeah. The entire relationship exists online and it's yeah. his girlfriend. It's a yeah. romantic partner. They'd never met. They'd never touched each other. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's insane. Yeah, it is. Right. I mean, and that's, I, some, I, it, it, it's insane. It must be even more insane for you. It's crazy, but I know it happens for someone of my generation yeah. and there'll be generations where that isn't even out of the norm potentially, right. you know? Right. I mean, they'll be like, well, at least he had a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> no, there'd be some other thing, right? Yeah. That's not even human. I mean, yeah. who knows? I mean, like, so, so we don't know where the technology is going. And so, I, I mean, I think the only thing that can slow that down is, is you know, some kind of societal crisis. And I, I don't know what that would be. I mean, you know, you, you know, you don't want to wish a crisis on your mm. society because it's going to be there's going to cause a lot of pain. Um, but I think we're in a lot of pain. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think our society, American society, modern Western society, is in an enormous amount of psychic pain. Yeah. I think it's in in a real spiritual crisis. I, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't go to church. When I say spiritual, I don't mean in the God sense, I, you know, I mean in the sort of deeper human sense of sure. like, what's life? What's the meaning of life? What are we here for? Uh, I don't think people get, you know, what, who would I die for? What would I die for? Right? I don't think pe- people don't have ready answers to those questions. If you can answer those questions readily, like you're living a spiritually full life and people can't answer them. Mm. Right? And so, so if you don't know who you die for, what principle you would risk your life for, who are you? Mm. Why? Why are you? What are you? What are you doing here? What are you doing on the planet? What's your? What's the point of your life, right? And um, there was a there's, there's a great American rock band. Uh, I'm dating myself a little bit now, but uh, called Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah, I assume they're an enduring an enduring band that you guys know. I mean, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They started yeah. 20 years ago, but they're yeah. incredible, right? Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, yeah. So they have a song. I can't remember the name of the song, but um, there's a lyric. The lyrics are something like. She wanted something to die. She wanted a cause to die for to make it beautiful to live. Sure. If you don't have that cause, and you know, classic, you know, typical. I mean, for our in for most of human history, that cause was your community. Yeah. Because without your community, you were dead. So of course you would die for your community because without them, you're dead anyway. So now we live in a circumstance where we don't need our communities to survive so we don't have woven into our lives this immediate this this immediate cause to 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 fight for which means that our our existence is less meaningful yeah 
Like we don't, we don't, we're just in it for ourselves. We're not in it for anything else. Like there's nothing we would die for, risk our lives for. And when and when you and you don't have an answer to that, and that's why people, you know, when re- revolutions come and and you know, insurrection and and you know, rebellion in the streets, like people love that because finally, oh my God, I believe in the revolution. Mm. I'm in the streets. I'm gonna I'm gonna risk my life confronting Assad's police, confronting, mm. you know, the 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 military in in Kiev, Ukraine during the revolution, you know, you know, whatever it is, you know, the, the unrest in Paris in 1968, I think the student revolution in Paris in was 68 or whatever it was like, Oh, here's a cause that I, you know, that's worth my life. That makes people feel really good. And, and though that has gone from the experience of ordinary people. And there's a real loss there. Yeah, it does. And you know, Obviously, there's there's been so many revol- you know revolts and revolutions yeah. and stuff like that in on all over these places, destabilized countries in that way. But even um, I know you had like the Occupy Wall Street stuff a couple of years back in the states, where a lot of people were coming out. Yeah. Suddenly had a cause. You know, we had big things uh, yep. about tuition fees back a couple of years in the UK right. when students were coming out and right. you know protesting. But obviously, it always gets a little bit messy when uh, those things happen. But it does seem that people are ready to. Yeah, they're, they're so, open to a cause, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, because it feels good. But if you ask people the question, people are sort of complacent people in a, in a safe, in a safe, quiet middle class life. What do you believe in so strongly that you would risk your life to defend it? People will look at you blankly. Yeah, they don't have an answer to that. That's a real tragedy. Mm. That's a life not lived well. That you don't have an answer for that question mm. and. Um, would you have an answer for that question? Yeah, I would say human dignity. Mm. I think I would risk my life to protect human dignity, whatever that means. Yeah, you know, um, uh, when people in power assault human dignity, degrade other people, that's worth dying for. Yeah. To stop that, bring a stop to that. Um, and. If I lived in a close tribal community, I wouldn't even bother saying human dignity. I would just say I would die for my people. Yeah. And there's dignity within my community, and that's one of the things I'd be dying for, but I would die for my people, defending sure. them. And they would for me. You know, like that's – But you'd we, like to be able to do I that. would like to, but yeah. that's not – you know, but I'm, I, I was born a certain time and place and very fortunate to have been in many, many ways. Yeah. So what do we replace that, that community defense with? We – we replace it with the defense of humanity, mm. but you have to consciously think of it, right? Like, yeah, and um, it's not automatic. It's not automatic. And I, you know, if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I might have given you the same blank stare that everyone else gives. Sure. You know, it's like I've just put more thought into it because I'm a journalist and I'm an anthropologist, and I've you know made it my my profession is thinking about things and writing about them. So I have a head start on people, you know. So, but the reason I'm saying all these things is because many other good people out there. That when they if they hear this, they will think of themselves. Oh yeah, I I, I never thought to put it that way, yeah. but the man's right. Yeah, I would die for that too. Yeah. So everyone should be thinking just at some point. Think about what you would die for. Think right. What do what I believe in so strongly that I would die for it? What yeah. is it? Yeah. No, that's it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um. So, have got any questions? It's hard to it's hard to follow on from something like that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
what you uh, what you doing next? Like uh, you've you've got a screening tonight, don't you? For, I have a screening uh, tonight. Yeah, of my film uh, Hell on Earth. It's about the Syrian civil war. Yeah, uh, the rise of ISIS. How was uh, sort of what was that experience like? You know, after um, after my friend Tim Hetherington was killed in Libya, I stopped war reporting, and Syria was just suicidally dangerous anyway. So, in order to shoot this film, we actually had to work with Syrians who were documenting their own civil war. Oh, wow. And so we got, uh, not exclusively, but a lot of the footage in the film is from uh, people that we worked with like that. So I wasn't... From, in, from Syrians? From Syrians in Syria yeah. who were documenting their own war. So you, you didn't go over there? No, no. I mean, there was no, there was no way to do it. I mean, yeah. now there's American forces in parts of Syria, and if you were embedded with them, which you can't be, but if you were, you'd, it would be safe. But... Um, you know, when we made this film, uh, going into Syria was just suicide because you'd be kidnapped and killed. Like, it's such a crazy, it's such a crazy thing that's going on at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, with ISIS and all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean they're sort of collapsing right now, but but you know, yeah, they seem. To, yeah, 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 you don't know, but uh, it was a couple of years back. It seemed like they were they yeah. were legit on the rise. You know that they had some legitimate power, but yeah, yeah it's good to see. I'll, hopefully, I'll be able to watch it when it when it comes out in the in the uk whenever yeah it's also you know it's also on um it's on itunes is it, and, is it, yeah. is it out on there uh yeah so if you go to my website sebastianyounger.com okay right younger is j-u-n-g-e-r yeah. sebastianyounger.com all of my books all of my movies including hell on earth you can you can find them and it's like 3.99 three dollars yeah. whatever it is i mean it's very cheap but yeah. all, any any of my films you can get very easily yeah on, that's through, how i watched the Restrepo yesterday oh good okay. Yeah. okay yeah so you can yeah you go onto my website sebastian i didn't realize it was on there yet. yeah yeah i mean there's other ways to get to it but yeah. there is a link on there that will send you to itunes and yeah, you can sweet. buy it and um i saw that you you've, you you you're involved in another project which is risk yeah so after tim was killed uh you know he uh he bled out on the battlefield in libya he, he didn't have a wound that was necessarily mortal uh he was hit by fragments from a mortar fired shrapnel by, shrapnel yeah. from uh, fired by Qaddafi's forces uh and he and he bled out and no one around him knew what to, none of the journalists around him knew what some were wounded some weren't but no one other guy was killed. Chris Hondros, a wonderful photographer, was killed. But no one knew what to do. They weren't with um, any regiment. They weren't with a company or anything. No, I mean, it was just the Libyan Civil War. And so oh, they okay. were there. Yeah, yeah sure. so they um, – and so I started a – I realized I was supposed to be with him on that assignment. I last wow. minute, I couldn't go. And I realized that had I been with him and not wounded um, – I probably would have been wounded, but had I not been wounded, I couldn't have saved his life because I didn't know anything about medicine, you know, battlefield medicine. Yeah. So I started an organization, a nonprofit called uh, Reporters Instructed in Saving Colleagues, RISC, R-I-S-C. And it provides free training courses for experienced freelance war reporters. Wow. The people really at risk on the front lines that do most of the heavy lifting in war reporting. Um, very few of them have medical training or, or a medical kit, and we sort of provide a four-day, provide a four-day, free four-day course. We pay for the hotel, twenty-four people at a time, as we're gradually training our way through the freelance war reporter population. It can't be particularly big. Uh, the po- oh, it's you know whatever. It's maybe this five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred. It's of just them. it's such a crazy, it's such a crazy job, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It is but just, that's but that's what but that's makes what, it appealing. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. Do, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a crazy sport. Yeah. That's why it's appealing, right? Yeah. I guess. Does it feel less crazy when you're in it? Yeah. Yeah. It it every, like- every, everything normalizes, right? I mean, as a civilian, 
It's uh, mind blowing to to think about going into a right. war zone like that but, where you're. But once you're there, it's normal. I mean, likewise for people who have no experience in, in martial arts, thinking about what happens in a boxing ring or in Brazilian, you know, Brazilian jiu jitsu at a mm. gym, it's totally insane, right? Yeah. Like, I'm fucking not going in there. Right, but once, but then once you're in there, it's like normalized. You're like, oh, okay, I can work with this. Like yeah, this. people say like, oh, your, your job must be fun. I'm like, yeah, it's just a, it's just another job. You right, do it. Yeah. right. Yeah, and that's, um, but yeah, no, that's that sounds really. And you actually, you you do you do it in London as well, don't you? The risk stuff. Uh, well, well, we do it all over the world. I mean, it yeah. sort of floats around. So we've done it in London. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and do you have any other projects that you have coming up or? Not immediately. I um, I my wife and I just had a um, had a child. Oh, congratulations! Uh, I have an eight month old baby girl who is still sleeping in uh in in your, in your room. Sleeping in. Oh yeah, she. It's, it's, if she if she leaves our bedroom, it'll be because she chose to. Sure. And walked out the door and lay, and went to sleep on the couch. Yeah. Um. Yeah. She, uh, we, uh, she's eight months old, and I miss her tremendously. Yeah. How how long have you? What are you, just since you've been in London? Yeah, I mean, it's so crazy, right? Yeah. I've never experienced this before. Is that the first time you've, you've, you've been away from home? Uh, for something? any length of time, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it's amazing. I can't believe how much I miss her. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, it is. I've, I have a couple of friends who have just had kids, and uh, it does it does change you, eh? Oh, my God. And in such good ways. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. It'd be so interesting to see sort of what you're like uh, in, 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 you know, five, six years from now. Yeah. And also, you know, I, the differences in how you will raise your kids with sort of with all the anthropology knowledge that you have and all the experience that you've had with sort of tribe and all of that stuff. Yeah. The difference is, you know, the, you know, even starting from not putting the kid in, you know, which your neighbors would probably be doing putting the kids in uh, or people living yeah. down the street from you would be doing. Yeah. I mean, we don't use a pram for, I think it's called a pram in, in, yeah, yeah. in England, right? A pram. Uh, it's a stroller. A stro- in stroller. Yeah. yeah. Um, we don't use a pram. I mean, I understand the you convenience just carry, of you just it. Carry? Yeah, and I have a little carrying sack, right? You know, you just put her in the clipper in, and she's right against my chest, and she loves that, right? Yeah. I mean, she, what 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 infants want, what you, what children want is, is closeness. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they want to feel you, touch you, smell you. That means you're, they're safe. And I, I, we don't use a pram partly because I think she likes it better, but I know I like it better. Like I just love feeling her. Yeah. Right. And and so I was saying to my wife, I was like, you know, if the if the Apache didn't do it if the comanche didn't do it if the sioux didn't have prams we're not going to have one like i mean you know like people have raised children for hundreds of thousands of years without prams so why so like i get the convenience of it but yeah. don't tell me it's necessary sure is that kind of your your measuring stick for how <laughs> you're gonna kind of <laughs> you know yeah is it like have have we been do- is this something that we brought in recently or is this something that's been happening for thousands of yeah. years yeah and there, listen there are recent you know like i mean there are recent things that are great like but, the apache uh, tribe probably didn't have like uh, vaccinations and stuff uh, right i mean of yeah. course of course but but the child that's not an experience for the child no of course but right you know it's I mean, just yeah. good i mean read medically it's good you know giving uh milk to a baby with a bottle i mean my wife breastfeeds but the, the baby needs more milk than that. So yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the, the child can't tell the difference sure. between a bottle and the human breast. Like, yeah. It's the same experience for the child. But, I, but, but absolutely, a child sleeping in another room, that's not the same experience. And so yeah. basically what we've thought is, what, you know, however, in, in basic terms, however humans raise children for hundreds of thousands of years, it's probably best for the children. Yeah. So we will only depart from that very, very carefully. Mm. And... Um, Again, I'm totally for modern medicine, all that stuff, but just in terms, mostly in terms of connection, human connection, like how far, how far away from the child 
do you are are you like yeah. and and it's pretty clear that children need a lot of proximity until a certain age and then they start to explore and if you deprive them of that proximity it makes them timid and fearful yeah no it, it makes sense doesn't it i think uh yeah it's interesting sort of going back the the old ways the best way it's like that with a lot of things everyone's yeah. trying to find the the next yeah. best best thing right but, but humans have been around for a long time yeah, and we've survived I mean, right. for I mean, a long time. There's basic human behaviors, yeah. right? And, you know, when people are grieving, they touch each other, they hug each other. And, and, you, and you can measure, I mean, you can measure oxytocin levels in the blood. Mm. And when a human being touches another human being, oxytocin levels go up. Mm. And oxytocin makes you feel good and secure, right? That's just the touch, human touch, right? So... Humans have been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years and making each other feel good. So when people tell me, oh, you know, this is going back to social media. Oh, well, you can just get all your human connections on social media. No, you can't. You can't get touch. Are yeah. you telling me like all the touching that went on for the last half million years was just a waste of time? It didn't need to happen? Obviously not. Yeah. It, it makes you think sort of what what other things have you lost over time yeah you know and i guess um you know what what's your opinion on sort of political correctness and stuff like that because i guess that's political correctness is sort of governments and sort of top-down society trying to change the way that you would naturally do things or say things or the way that you would behave well i yeah i mean here's what i would say free speech is a is a sacred right yeah and if you want to say we all have the legally protected right to look like assholes. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm. God forbid the government prevent anyone from looking like an asshole. Yeah. Right. That's free speech. Um, there is the matter of human respect and human dignity. And I think in the old sense of political correctness, I mean, now it's a very pejorative term. Yeah. Right. But the original sense of political correctness is, look, just don't say disparaging things about other people. You don't have to like them. You don't have to have anything to do with them. But don't publicly say things that mock and denigrate other people. Yeah. Right? And that's true if you're white, black, rich, poor, whatever. Just leave it alone. Like, don't, don't, don't create a sort of ranking of, of moral value in mm. society where some people are worth less than others, whatever. So the classic example when political correctness started in America was as a um, as a way to confront racism. Mm. Like, it's just not politically correct to say something racist, to say that another race is inferior to your race, right? That was the beginning of it. It became a kind of tyranny, right? It became, I mean, unfortunately, it became itself actually quite unjust and prejudiced. So mm. it, it, where it's come to now is you can't even acknowledge dignified differences between people yeah right you can't even acknowledge the thing that's obvious to everyone is that the human race is this incredible sort of banquet of variety and difference and think you know people are beautiful in all kinds of different ways and very different from each other and it all what makes the human race you know it's amazing right you can't even acknowledge those differences like mm. and 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 differences of ability right i mean Tall people get to play basketball successfully. Short people don't. But yeah. God forbid you actually say that, yeah. right? And so, so there's this awful tyranny of of. Um, it's almost a kind of like 
um, it's sort of what's wrong with socialism. It's like, no, 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 we're all the same. No one's different. Like, the, God forbid anyone feel a little bad because they're not playing basketball because they're not mm-hmm. tall enough. I mean, you're not tall. I'm not tall. We're not yeah. playing fucking basketball. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, we have different, you and I have different skills that maybe basketball players would want to have. Yeah. But that one in particular, that's not for us. <laughs> that's, that's just not going to be our no thing, sl- right? No slam dunks for either of us. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I think that um, political correctness took something that was essential to society, which is a basic baseline respect for other people, uh, and, 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 you know, in those first intoxicating days of like, oh, wow, we can all act well, like that's what we're supposed to, you know, and they took it way too far. Mm. Yeah, it does seem that way. I think in some, I think that America seems to have a lot more of a problem with it at the moment than most other countries do. But it, it, it from, from the outside, you know, you're probably aware of how people view America. It's like just the most extreme version of everything. Yeah, that's right. You know, every, everything's bigger. Yeah, that's so right. So like the, the good stuff's bigger, the bad <laughs> stuff's bigger as well. Everything's bigger. Absolutely. And um, it just seems like there's, there's this such, this crazy problem now with sort of like the super liberals. Yeah. Wanting, you know, that you can't say this to anyone. You can't do this. You can't, you know, there's got to be a quota of all the different, everything's involved with everything. And it just yep. seems to be, it's taking choice away from, that's right. And, and also, they set themselves up. So now conservatives will say, will make a virtue of being politically incorrect. Yeah. And then license themselves to actually say something quite racist. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, I'm not politically correct. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something really quite horrible about mm-hmm. another race. You know, mm-hmm. like, so that, like the, the, the left, and I'm, I'm a Democrat, I'm liberal, and I watch my fellow liberals like take this thing right off a fucking cliff. Yeah. Right. I'm like, all right, there. That's that's the result. I mean, this is what you get. Is now you've made being politically un- incorrect a virtue. Yeah. In the other side, and that's not good for them either. Like they they are, what the conservatives are doing in America is completely appalling as well, mm-hmm. and I think more destructive than the left. But whatever, that's my opinion. Well, I guess when when you push the boundaries of either side of a spectrum, it retaliates by increasing yeah. the boundary on the other side. Yeah. So when the sort of liberal side gets too ridiculous, yeah. so does the, the absolute, side Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you want to make yourself an easy target for mockery? Like, really? That's what you wanted to do? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a, I don't know, like sort of what are your general thoughts on the, without getting too political, on the sort of political climate in, in the States at the moment, for, you know, considering that you've, that you're from there? I mean, uh, I think the, you know, the White House is clearly like completely dysfunctional and headed for a, 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 a crisis and a collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, and the GOP, as long as they had an, the GOP or the Republicans, yes, uh, as long as they had an enemy, which was Barack Obama in the White House or the, or the, the Democrats in the House or the Senate, as long as they had an enemy to sort of attack and blame things on, they, they were great. They were unified. Enemies unify people, right? Yeah. That's the, pretty much the, what we've been talking about the whole that's time. That's right. Yeah. The, 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 the disaster that struck the Republican Party in 2016 was that they, they lost their enemy. Mm. They've, got, they've got all the power. They got everything. They got the White House. They got the Senate. They got the House. They got the Supreme Court. They have most of the um, state houses around the country. They don't have an enemy anymore. And the in 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 the um, the Obama the existence of Obama, the fact of Barack Obama created such a powerful dynamic that the GOP was able to ignore their own internal divisions because they had a common enemy, 
right? The Crips and the Bloods were fighting the Martians, yeah. right? Yeah. Now there's no more Martians, and the GOP itself is is they are more deeply divided ideologically than centrist Republicans and centrist Democrats are. Sure, like those people have more in common than the extreme wings of the GOP. Yeah, it makes sense. And so I think what is coming is not only a political cataclysm within the GOP, like a a violent rupture. I mean, Steve Bannon is talking about a GOP civil war. Like what's coming is a political. Um, crisis in the GOP, but there's also a moral crisis. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump is saying things and doing things that are not only not Republican, they're not moral. Yeah. And the GOP is are not objecting. They're they're basically letting themselves get bitch slapped by Donald Trump sure. like all day long every day. And eventually they will find the sort of dignity and pride, enough dignity and pride and manhood in themselves to stand up to him, but they haven't reached that point of humiliation yet. And eventually they will. And when they do, I, I pray for, I'm, I'm not a Republican, a Democrat, but w- Democrats need Republicans. Republicans need Democrats, yeah. right? Like with Republicans, Democrats don't exist, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we exist in opposition to each other. We are, we, Democrats need a, a vibrant, wonderful Republican Party to disagree with. Sure. Right, we don't have that right now. Right, they're fighting with each other, and so I'm dying for them to have this sort of collapse because then they will find their true conservative essence and one that should be dignified and noble and all those other things. And I disagree with them on policy, but I respect, I you know, I respect the 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 ideas of conservatism that they're equally value equally valid as the ideas of liberalism. I I respect that. I just don't agree with it. And that's what we need and it's not gonna happen until they completely implode after a year of really debasing humiliation by their president. And do you think that's gonna happen? I think it's unavoidable. Really? Yeah. It's 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 yeah, it's just been such a crazy and obviously we we follow it. The whole world are following Of course. But sort of it, it must be so different from inside you know it feels like the american citizens are sort of in this family where the parents are fighting yeah you know like mom and dad are screaming at each other we're all like oh my god are mom and dad gonna get a divorce like is this like what's happening yeah yeah that's crazy um sort of final sort of thing um Going back off off of politics here. Yeah. Let's talk about politics for too long. But uh, going back onto sort of the whole tribal thing. You know, when you read tribe, it does sound like it's it's almost trying to get people to start acting in, in the change of way they think a little bit. You know, it's not just there are some books out there that you read and it's literally that you read it. It's a good read and, and then that's it. But tribe stirs something up that makes you want to take action and sort yeah. of change the way you live a little bit. I assume that was sort of some of the intention that you had when you were writing the book. Yeah. So do you feel like you are trying to start a almost cultural revolution in the way that people see themselves and their community? All right. So what I would say is that as a journalist, I never want to affect the story that I'm covering. Sure. Right. So that's why journalists don't carry guns in war zones. Like suddenly you're affecting the story that you're covering. Yeah. And it starts to go in a circle and then you're not, you're not committing journalism anymore. And so I don't, 
I'm not, this isn't a call to action because it's not the journalist's role to tell people what to do. But what you can do is give them all the information that you think they need in order to make a wise decision about what to do. That decision is their, their responsibility. I don't want them, I don't want to be in a position saying, you all should do this, right? That's not, it's not my business, it's not my problem, it's not my role. But what I can do is give you all the information to make a wise decision. So when I tell people, you know what, this modern society feels great, you can, you know, take airplanes, you can drive cars, you have central heating, you know, whatever. But actually, suicide rates are quite high, depression rates are quite high, et cetera, et cetera. You may not know this. But mental health issues are, are, are dominate our society, and in poorer, small-scale societies, they don't. Mm. So there's the information. You do what you want with it. Mm. That's the proper role of journalism. And so when I wrote my book, Tribe, it felt like a radical re-understanding, a kind of counterintuitive re-understanding of our society, um, that felt important, and it felt like it might prompt people to make decision, good decisions mm. about what, how to live their lives, how to treat their their society, their community, their nation, you know, whatever. Um, but it wasn't necessarily something I would. It wasn't a call to arms. It wasn't a call to action. Sure, you're not trying to be the the leader of this no. revolution, but you're trying to perhaps right. throw down some fuel and then wait for them to kind of light the spark a little bit. It's like, you know, it's like with someone who has a drinking problem, yeah. right? You don't say to them, you need to stop drinking. I mean, you can say that, but it's not going to work very well. But what you can do is talk to them about the consequences of their drinking yeah. in their lives. Like, listen, man, you, your wife left you. You had a car accident. Like, you you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Is that working for you? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That works a lot better than you need, you need, you really need to stop drinking. Mm. Right? So likewise, like, you really need to live communally. Like that's not going to work. But I can write a book about what happens emotionally, psychologically with people when they don't have access to a close community. Like I can write a book about that and you come to your own decision. Mm-hmm. Like and, and uh, most people will come to a decision that I think it's healthy for them and for their society. So apart from going to boxing, did you change sort of any other parts or aspects of your lifestyle that you changed to kind of using that information, you know, you, you gathered yeah. this information that, that, is, that, that you've written about in tribe. What did you do with it? Well, I already lived in a, um, in a pretty close knit community. Uh, I mean, it's New York city, it's lower East side. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not an Apache village, yeah. you know, whatever. But I mean, compared to the kind of suburb that I grew up in, you know, it really, it has that sort of communal fabric that I really, really like. So I already lived in a place like that, right? Um, I was already working in this boxing gym. Yeah. If I weren't, I think I would have tried to find something sure. like that, but I was already doing it. So within the limits of limitations of my life, I think I already had those components there. Uh, if I didn't, I think I would have sought them out, but I, but I didn't need to. Sure. And, you know, one of the reasons I was sensitized to these issues and able to write the book was precisely because those things were in my life. Mm. And, and I felt lucky. And I started to understand why I felt lucky, why I was lucky. And so, like, so no, I didn't make big changes in my life because I, through some good fortune or, or good choices, I already had those, some of those things. Mm. 
but sort of i guess some of the main things that you'd look for people that you know trying to take yourself out of that report and objectivity to the whole situation which is try and just try and be less selfish basically isn't it yeah and sometimes people will equate selflessness with donating to causes and stuff like that and that's great right but 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 it's not it's like that's the social media version of that's right that's right what you really want to do for your sake and other people's sake is participate in communal action whatever that is it feels good if there's a crisis you'll do that people do that instinctively right but without a crisis what you will benefit yourself enormously by actively seeking out situations where that are deeply egalitarian, where people are judged on their own merits, um, and where what your actions serve the larger group, mm. and in exchange you get the benefits of being in a larger group. Mm. Whatever that is, I mean, I, the, 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 there's. There's no limit to the to the forms that that can take. Yeah, um, but it it should have those qualities. And that could be as simple as going and joining a boxing gym. Or I think I think so. I mean, you know, it would be better to live twenty four seven in a in, in a village that operated like that. But we, it's not our society. You yeah. know, we're not gonna whatever. We're you not. Gonna, there's like a balance of how much of your life can you actually change to try that's and right. implement some of that's these right. Lessons, yeah. And so, I mean, do you, you could do you want to you know move in, move to a commune in the forests of Germany? Like, go for it. You know what I mean. But short of that, you're living it. You know, you're living your life as it is. Yeah. But there are all things you can do: an hour a day, three days a week, whatever it may be, that gives you a bit of that. And maybe all you need is a bit. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's better than nothing. Mm. And I guess that that same lesson even more important to people who have who are coming out of the army. Oh the yeah, totally, absolutely, because they're experiencing the the shock of transition. They're, they're here, they've gone up, yeah. and now they've come down lower. That's right. Yeah. And they think there's something wrong with them. What's wrong? I'm home, I'm with my wife, my children, and my beautiful town, I should be happy, I'm very depressed, there's clearly something wrong with me. No, you're actually having a very healthy reaction sure. to losing something very ancient and very human and very valuable, which is a communal communal connection. Like You're having a healthy reaction to losing that. Like, there's nothing wrong with you. There's, al- there's almost a bit of irony in that they feel confused, but actually they may be the clearest understanding of everyone there. Absolutely. Because finally they yeah. actually understand, you know, they can right. see this problem a little bit clearer, even but, if they don't know they can see it. But he, the, here, this is the problem with our, you know, one of the problems with our society and, and, and also in some ways with capitalism, right? So you take someone who's depressed, who, who, who was in combat was dep- or, or is in the military, Say so they didn't see combat. They're not traumatized. They're in the military. They're in a small unit. They leave that fraternity, that closeness. They come back to their American suburb with their family and their whatever, and they're and they're deeply depressed. They don't know why. So what the medical establishment does is pathologize that. Mm. They say, "Oh, you're depressed. We need to fix you." They don't say, "Oh no no, you're having a totally healthy yeah. reaction to a very real human loss." Right? They don't say that. They don't say you're healthy. They say you're unhealthy. That you have that there's something wrong with you. You're 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 clinically depressed, right? So we're gonna we're gonna give you therapy at three hundred dollars an hour, or we're gonna give you medication, Prozac, antidepressants mm. that will they won't fix you, but they'll mask the symptoms. They'll mask the feeling of depression so that you'll think you're fine, but actually, the problem never got solved, right? 
that loss of community that you first experienced, rightly so, that didn't get fixed. Now you're on Prozac. Mm. Now you're not. Now you don't know. You don't know that you're depressed. So you're not looking to solve the problem. Sure. You're not looking for community. You're You'll tra- never you're fix it. You train the symptoms, not the that's not right. The cause, yeah. And now you're on Prozac the rest of your life, and and now that you're on Prozac the rest of your life, and the rest of the population is too. I mean, the number of people on Prozac or you it's know anti, antidepressants is insane, right? Yeah. It's a huge number of people, right? And once you have that in place, those people are never going to be incentivized to proactively create community within our their society because their alienation is being uh, medicated. Sure. So that system continues. So the, this change in the view of this condition of transitioning, actually it's more important that this is understood from higher up, trickling yeah. down opposed to the other way. Doctors need to understand that there are other ways to treat this issue because it's not, just depression well but it's tricky because doctors can't reorganize society to create communities yeah. right so what the, basically what i so again gonna, yeah you're what gonna ask be, for a solution that you can't give that's right and not only that it's a solution that doesn't benefit anyone in economic terms so if doctors if literally if shrinks psychologist psychiatrists in america psychologists in america said to people like that oh listen um I mean, I have a friend who's going through this, right? He's got um, a very problematic marriage. He doesn't have a job. Uh, he's feeling like he doesn't, his purpose in the world is unclear. He's not leading a meaningful life. And he's incredibly depressed. And he, frankly, as he should be. Those are not, yeah. those aren't good circumstances, right? Yeah. So what's he doing? His, his wife said, you should see a shrink. You should see a psychologist. And you should go on antidepressants. Right. My friend is having a completely healthy reaction to very bad circumstances. Mm. There's nothing wrong with them. Mm. There's something very right with them is that he's body and soul. He's rebelling against something that's like antithetical to like human happiness. And, um, but realizing that, I mean, what, so he's, he's facing a choice. He can either realize there's a systemic problem in his life and frankly, in the society that we all live in, or he can say, I'll medicate myself, I'll go to a shrink, and now he's part of the economic system that actually depends on illness in order to thrive. Yeah. It depends on the pathologizing of normal human reactions to sure. noxious circumstances sure, yeah. in order to survive. Now, the, I mean, there's people who really are clinically depressed, who absolutely need Prozac. I mean, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of very, very real medical, uh, psychological issues that need to be medicated and yeah. treated. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. But someone like my friend, like, that's not what's going on. But there's enormous fin- economic incentive in a modern country to pathologize things and then treat them with very expensive drugs. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the big differences between the the States and, and the UK is that you'd be getting these drugs for free in the UK. But obviously in America, right. medicine is so expensive. Like right. big pharma is such a Absolutely. huge industry yeah. in, in yeah. the States. So um, I don't know if you've heard of a film called Prescription Thugs. It's called what? Prescription Thugs. It's so really it's basically a film by that. It's by um, oh, what's his name? Bell. He, he did a uh, bigger, stronger, faster. Have you oh, seen that as well. Yeah. Uh, and it's basically about that. It's about the re- 
ridiculous, ridiculous amount of just prescriptions and how yeah. how financially yeah. incentivized people are to. It's it's on Netflix actually. Yeah. I don't know if you uh, if you've got that or anything, but um, about that subject, it's a really interesting. I mean, look, I, you know, likewise, like the the acceptance of pain, of pain, for example. Mm-hmm. Like if you have a society that has decided that no one should experience any discomfort whatsoever, you are setting up a a system that will get people addicted to opioids, Mm. right? If your goal is to eliminate all experience of discomfort, you're going to create a population of addicts. If there's some sort of acknowledgement that like life doesn't always like physically feel good, like sometimes things hurt, like I don't mean extreme pain. I mean, just a sort of normal level of like, wow, that, that hurts and it's going to hurt for a few days. I mean, I, you know, I had, um, you know, I, just past couple of years, I had, uh, surgery a couple of times, first time in my life, uh, kidney stones. I had a quadruple hernia repair wow. and, uh, and atrial fibrillation. I had an ablation to fix my, uh, a rhythm problem in my heart. Mm. Right. And, uh, the amount of narcotics I was prescribed for pain was unbelievable. Mm. Right. And I was, I wasn't in that much pain. I mean, it didn't feel great, but I, you know, whatever it was, you could live with it. And I, I mean, had I taken everything that they prescribed me, I'd be, I would be a Percocet addict right yeah. now, right? That's that's society deciding that no level, no level of discomfort is acceptable. That's insane, right? Like, I yeah. mean, as our as a species in the natural world, that expectation of life is completely absurd, and it's financially incentivized. And I guess that kind of ties in with right at the beginning of when, when we started chatting. It's the f- sort of psychological or emotional pain that people are trying to stop when, you know, society, they don't want anyone to ever be out of, you know, in discom- discomfort physically yeah. or in any other that's way. That's right. Yeah, that's and right. And that's the problem you, that you end up with sort of, uh, sort of the analogy of the butterfly, which is if that that caterpillar has the the butterfly has to fight its way out of yeah. out of the cocoon and by doing that it gets the strength that yeah. it needs to, to live yeah if you just cut it out of there it would die straight away that's right it's the same like you need uh, you need pain physical emotional psychological yeah. at times to be able to actually grow at all yeah i mean we're at our best when we struggle against something mm-hmm. you know so clearly our evolution was characterized by struggle and we we adapted we evolved to, to deal with it and we're at our best at a sort of like moderate level of struggle. Yeah. I mean, too much struggle and it crushes us. Yeah. Too little struggle and we just slowly die. And that's that's where an awful lot of modern society is. And it really, it's a it, it's a, it's a real tragedy actually mm. for the human spirit. I mean, it really for human dignity. I mean, it really is it's a real loss. I guess the, the moral of the story, I guess, is in a way, don't be so afraid of struggle. Yeah. You know, don't run away from it all the time when something's going to be hard. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, but sometimes actually you're better off if you do. I, I mean, I can say that if I look at my life, my personal life, and I don't want to you know, go into details, but just generally speaking, like I look at my personal life as it is right now, the things that I'm most sort of blessed by, the most for, feel the most fortunate about, like almost without exception, those things, if I trace the, their origins back, they came from circumstances where I had to, I had to adapt to loss, to tragedy, to misfortune, like things that felt incredibly unfortunate when they happened. I adapted to them, and the best things in my life actually came out of those things. Mm. You never know when something bad happens, even the death of a friend. Mm. 
the loss of a marriage, you know, whatever, I mean, all these, whatever, all these things, going bankrupt. I mean, I haven't been bankrupt, but you know, whatever, I mean, whatever those things are, you never know at the time that those are necessarily bad things. They yeah. feel bad yeah. at the moment. They're bad, but you don't know what's going to grow out of that. And if I look at my life right now, all the things that I'm, I feel most lucky to have in my life, all, every single one came out of tragedy, mm. came out of misfortune. So, this society that is dedicated to making sure that nothing uncomfortable or bad or unpleasant happens to anyone, they're really, you know, we're really missing a very basic truth about life. Like, that doesn't necessarily, doing that does not necessarily lead to happiness. In fact, there's a fair amount of, fair amount of data showing that it leads to the opposite. Hmm. Man, I couldn't think of a better way to end it. I just want to say a ma- massive thank you, Sebastian. I really, really appreciate it. Well, likewise. I really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. It was an exceptional conversation. Oh, I'm, glad, really, I'm glad really you did. I really enjoyed it. it. Awesome, mate. Uh, yeah, thanks again. Cheers. So that is it, guys. Um, yeah, really, really incredible guy who's doing some really, really awesome work. And it was an absolute a privilege and an honor to sit down and, and get to chat to him. I need to say thank you to uh, Maria Thomas, who is the one who reached out on my behalf to Sebastian and put us in touch and made this all come together. So really, really appreciate her involvement in, in, in making this all happen. Uh, if you guys haven't already, I'm sure you'd be interested by the end of this podcast in checking out some of Sebastian's work. Um, you can, uh, y- yeah, you know, especially the book tribe, I thoroughly recommend you checking it out. Uh, some people listening might not be big readers and neither am I, but if you're listening to this podcast, then obviously you're into listening to things. So that's what I am as well. I listen to a lot of podcasts. So because I didn't have the time to sit down and focus on reading a book, instead, what I've been doing recently is listening to a lot more audio books. And that is, how I listen to Tribe. And I've listened to it twice now because it's really, really great. And I've listened to a load more books on there. I use Audible. I'm not being sponsored by them or paid by them to say that, but they are a very, very good service. Um, they give you, I think it's like £7 a month and they give you one free book a, one free book a month and then you can buy extra books on top of that. Um, so yeah, you know, if you're, you're interested about reading or listening to that book, I do thoroughly recommend you getting Tribe or any of other Sebastian's uh, of Sebastian's books I haven't read or listened to his others but i definitely want to at some point and uh yeah i also mentioned that i watched restrepo and uh that's that's a crazy film and i advise you to check that out i listen, i watched that on um on itunes you can you can buy or rent that off of itunes and if you want to find anything more about sebastian you can go to his website which is simply sebastianyounger.com and he's got all of the links and information there to uh to all of his books and all of his films so yes, I hope you enjoyed that, guys. If you did, uh, please just you know go and share share the episode and tell your buddies and all of that stuff, and it helps me out. Uh, apart from that, if you want to get on touch, hit me up on social media, Raspberry underscore Ape on Twitter or Instagram. You can hit me up on Facebook uh, or email me. Uh, email address is podcast at raspberryape.com. And that's about it, guys. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and uh, I'll catch you next time.